Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 135th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's worth exactly $500 and facts be damned. MTG mm. Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. A quick message from our sponsor, Face-to-Face Games. Face-to-FaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on Magic singles and sealed product with shipping to both the U.S. and Canada. Check out Face-to-Face card pricing via MTGPrice.com, whether building a deck or stockpiling a spec. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My guest... My regular co-host this week is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good afternoon, James. How have you been? Very good, Travis. How was your weekend? Uh, Productive. I did some normal human things involving, we played tennis and went outside and, I don't know, felt like a little more like a person. You, you, You drove to the tennis court in your Porsche and then... Told, told the local like urchin children to get out of your light well it was a public court all right so <laughs> uh and we did drive we didn't take the bicycles we should have taken the bicycles but uh we didn't plan far enough ahead it is close enough to ride um, are you guys wearing your tennis whites you know i actually don't have white workout clothes I, I feel like I feel like you would own tennis whites. I'm disappointed. Oh, trust me. I went upstairs to look for something, but I don't play tennis. I play racquetball, which doesn't have that uh, culture. Uh, I, I'm not a tennis player. Like this is basically the second time in my life I've played. So I don't own those types of clothes. I do have white tennis shoes, but I don't think they're Rod Lavers, which are a very old style. And I don't think are actually good for playing tennis. Yeah, I, I think tennis whites are, are bad in the squash court because if it's a racquetball, it probably doesn't leave a mark, right? But with the squash balls, you probably get some pretty sweet marks where people nailed you. Um, I'm not familiar with squash too much, but I know from my understanding, they're very similar. And I mean, racquetball, we leave welts on each other all the time. Uh, definitely yeah. still possible over there. Frank, I feel like I, I feel like my time in squash courts, the the marks on the wall were all from the black balls. Yeah, uh, probably. I, 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 the one thing I don't know anything about is squash balls, so they might be of a different a different make. The racquetball balls don't leave marks on the walls in terms of like coloring, uh, for yeah. the most part. Uh, but they yeah. will leave marks on you. <laughs> Apparently, there was one guy who plays on played at nationals level with uh, would give people blood clots. He could hit it so hard. <laughs> A lot, there's a lot of torque. Yeah, yeah, you get some power in it. Um, yep. How about you? Do anything terribly exciting? Enjoy the cooler weather? We were uh, up north, uh, which was even cooler, yeah. and uh, at somebody else's cabin, yeah. And uh, some kid had a birthday, and it was a bunch of parents um, remembering when we used to gather and the girls would dance around in their bikinis before hopping in the hot tub and getting hammered. And now everybody's got kids and it was just a sad display of lost youth and innocence. Yeah. Cause like every <laughs> year, a larger percentage of your conversations is more about how you used to do fun things and the fun things you do yeah. today. You cross that tipping point at like 26 or something. Yeah. Somebody, somebody said to me, you're looking, you're looking much more like a dad now. <laughs> And, and I and I knew it was a backhanded yeah. compliment, but I smiled. How dare it. you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's that's savage. That's savage. It's, yeah, it was savage. Uh, well, at least at least you didn't get told you look like a dad without having kids. <laughs> yeah, truth. <laughs> All right. Uh, truth. Okay. 
What's on the agenda uh, this week? So well, our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. Our agenda this week is show in four parts. Segment one, our top movers of the cards that have moved the most in price this week, a little lighter for the first time in a while. Segment two, our cards to want. James and I will run through a few <laughs> cards we think may rise in price in the future. Segment three, our metagame week in review. We will be talking about Grand Prix Detroit. Detroit, uh, the Team Modern Grand Prix. Um, and I don't think any of our buddies made it, but I know I uh, I knew the guys who finished at 8-0 yesterday and 7-1. So, unfortunately, I'm not seeing their names. That's a bummer. Uh, and then finally, segment four, the topic of the week. How much should magic cost? Good, good question. Should be resolved mm-hmm. uh, just in a couple minutes. So, Let's get started. <laughs> uh, segment one, our top movers. Uh, we're going to start this week <laughs> off with uh, Mishra's Workshop out of Antiquities, about seventeen hundred to two grand. Uh, so relatively small change value wise, right? Like uh, percentage wise, I should say, only about fifteen twenty percent at most. But it does represent a three hundred dollar increase. Um, you know, and if you're trying to decide between paying seventeen hundred and two thousand, that's you know <clears throat> a car payment uh, or what have you. So certainly a a, a, a low percentage but large absolute value for most people yeah and i think we can lump all three of these first ones in together and there's a little bit of a discussion to be had workshop and in, in theory as you said moving up just under 20 percent. likewise with library of alexandria moving in theory from 1250 to 1500 and also moat um legends reserve list card moving from 850 to 1100 for about a 30 percent gain the thing to to know about tracking prices on these cards that are on the reserve list that are in relatively shallow supply on TCG Player, which is where a lot of these prices ultimately get sourced from, regardless of what your source is, um, at least in North America, is that the prices have been very fluid. They've definitely been heading up in the mid to long term, but there has been some retracing going on, specifically on dual lands has been mo- no- noted uh, most recently, and you really need to be comparing to social media platforms, especially the high-end group on Facebook and so forth, to see what things are actually selling for. Also looking at um, completed listings on eBay and triangulating pricing against those. So it's entirely possible that in the same week that we report that Misha's Workshop is up 20% on TCG Player because the last co- the lowest price caught two copies or something out of five got knocked off. You could have had a lower price copy, you know, $200 below 1700 maybe a $1,500 copy sold on eBay. That's the problem when you have a limited data set. So when you're starting to consider whether you're going to be selling these cards you've been holding for a while or you're looking to get in on them, you want to figure out where the lowest possible price is and go from there. Yeah, and what's really weird with the way TCG player pricing works and, and one of the struggles of dealing with something with a relatively low volume uh, and a lot of sales taking place offline Um between local players, stores, and what have you, is uh, I can have a Mishra's workshop and put it on TCG Player for seventeen hundred. Maybe I did this six months ago, back when the card was fifteen hundred, and I saw I went from fifteen to fifteen fifty to sixteen hundred, and I'm going. Mm, I think this is going to keep going. I'm actually going to pull mine off. I'm going to pull my copy at seventeen hundred <clears throat> off uh, and kind of let it ride. Well, now we went from having a copy that was at seventeen hundred, and now it's gone. Uh, and then suddenly the floor is 2000. So it makes it look like 
there was a price increase when really I just opted to remove a copy from the market, or maybe I sold it locally. So I take it off and I sold it for 1500 locally, even though I had it for 17 on TCG. But now it looks like the copy that was on TCG at 17 sold. TCG has that data. So you don't see the mark and are they, and they, I should say they, they lack the data that it was sold because it wasn't sold through their platform. So the market price doesn't change, but people still see it. You know, it was 1700 last week. It's 2000 to get in this week. Um, and this is where if you really want to understand the prices of these types of cards, um, it's hard to the, the web fronts are a good resource, but they do not tell the whole story in the way that they would for a more common product, like for instance, Teferi, right? Like Teferi, we can yeah. go really, really well just looking at a couple online vendors. You're not going to get that type of information with $2,000 antiquities cards. So if you really want to understand that stuff, you got to be in touch with the people running the booths because they're the ones who are on the GP floors every weekend who can tell you like how much are these, these cards actually selling for, what are the conditions valuing at, and that type of thing. Yeah, there's a couple other points to go through. There's um, one of the reasons that the like high-end... Uh, group on Facebook is important and other similar groups and also social, other social media channels is that for a really high end item like a $2,000 card, if you sell it through eBay, you're losing 10% um, through eBay and another 3% through PayPal minimum. And on a $10 item, that's like $1.30. But on a $1,000 item, that's $130. And on a $2,000 item, you're talking about $250 plus. So those are significant chunks of change compared to you know, average person access hourly wage. And because of that, as the, you know, price tag of the item rises, you have more and more motivation to shift your efforts off of the platforms that take a big chunk. Yeah, for sure. Um, so that's one of the things to keep in mind. The other thing to consider is that you got to play the long game here. Um, you know, I've seen some people like semi panicking or asking open-ended questions on on twitter it's the kind of thing that sig will bring to the forefront is like if, if it looks like the price is wobbly for a little bit it's like is the sky falling dot 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 question mark <laughs> reality is that at any given new plateau that posts up with a big ticket item you are going to have some people that pull theirs off the shelf and go okay i got in on this like six years ago at three hundred dollars if this is fifteen hundred dollars now i've got a car a couple car payments i'd like to make or a vacation i'm going to spend on you know when you were in at a really low entry point, your motivation to exit and claim your profits gets higher and higher as, as the as the market price ratchets up, right? Whereas if you got in at 1200 and it rises to 13, you, you have a, a different psychological impact. You, you feel like it hasn't really changed much. So you're going to sit on it. And even if it stalls at 1300 for five years, you'll still have this weird like, oh, I, I don't want to admit I was wrong. I'm going to wait for it to go up kind of mentality. And these are all like little mental ticks that we need to address as we're dealing with all forms of finance, not just magic. Um, so, you know, I think the dynamics that in, are developing here or have developed is that you have the big mouth whales that are drifting through the market, slowly acquiring cards opportunistically when they see things slightly below market average for the long game. Like the vendor that I met in, in Ohio a few weeks ago that's got like three sets of alpha and like Lord knows how much the value, like a quarter of a million dollars, half a million dollars or something worth of cards he's got stashed away that nobody really knows about and never hit the market. And he's acquiring all the time. He's certainly willing to buy, but he has no intention of selling. Um, and then you have the people that at each plateau will fall out of 
um, the the collector market and into the seller's market and drop their their product into the hands of the whales and the smattering of regular players who you know acquire one or two collectible pieces that are important to them or are slowly pulling together an old school deck or whatever over a long period of time and so that that means that the price is going to there's going to be some jostling there's going to be some oscillation in the price um, and all you got to worry all you need to concern yourself with is that the long-term curve for the for these reserve list cards, the you know top 50 nostalgia cards of all time, is going to be uphill so long as Magic is a major brand. And I was talking about this with the owner when I was in Ohio about how even if Magic like lost 25% of its player base, it probably wouldn't affect the top end very much because the 25% that would be most likely to be lopped off would be at the bottom mm-hmm. end of the market. You know, like if standard collapses under its own weight and and wizards you know fails to um you know ratchet up edh participation or something to counter it at some point um or offer up an alternative format or if modern stalls out gets stale has major banning problems or something at some point then the 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 percentage of the market that might fail out or say there was an economic crisis and magic reacted differently than it did the last time um all of these things would knock off the people that are the least invested in the game the people that are the most invested in the game would you know these whale quiet runnings whales that are you know snapping up things are just going to see a bunch more opportunity right they're going to they're going to again play the long game and assume that the brand will rebound back that it's like too big to fail and go ahead and plow some more money into you know if a $2,500 card falls down under 2000 they might seriously start thinking about just picking up more so uh i think that the high-end market of magic is already a relatively niche small scale marketplace with maybe you know less than a hundred thousand significant participants and so and all of them are fairly committed individuals with relatively deep pockets and are more insulated than say the fnm scene is from seismic shifts in magic's participation right yeah yeah i I completely agree and uh i'm pretty much all that i suppose um and i i i guess the the takeaway point here that i that i pick up on is that you will see price fluctuations that will appear a little bit larger, I think, on higher end cards like a workshop where it will fluctuate 10 or 15%, but it's kind of slowly ticking up as it's doing that. Uh, and you won't see that in other cards in quite the same way uh, because they just behave differently. So keep that in mind if that's your market. So let me run a couple of specifics by you that I was considering this weekend and get your feedback. Um, Brian Ascenti, who we interviewed a few months back, um, you know, we know he didn't sell his entire collection to Stu in the spring. He still had some stuff on hand and it looked like he, I think he put up a full unlimited power nine on the high end group, uh, last week. And last I checked, he had an SP, very nice looking SP Mox Pearl that I think he wanted 2000 for and an ancestral recall near mint with a slight scratch on the back for 2,500. Keep in mind that recall through the summer was being posted on retail sites as high as four thousand. How does that how does that leave you? And the moxes were in the also in the three to four thousand range most of the time they were list, found at retail. Um, how do you feel about targeting one or the other of those cards? And what would your logic be? Um, you every time you find these deals, I feel like you ask me, and every time my answer is the same. Like I I, I don't know. I haven't done enough fine grain research on these cards at any point in time to be able to you know provide a really educated and nuanced answer beyond well i don't know it sounds like a good idea 
Uh, I guess, you know, we've seen prices on these cards inflate pretty hard over the last, what was it, six months or so, year, um, basically since they announced the Legacy Pro Tour that we had not long ago. Let, uh, let me put it Let me put it another way. If Ancestral Recall's unlimited, like, Card Kingdom cash buy list is 2400 which probably explains the $2,500 price tag, right? It suggests that he, he knows he can move it for sure at that cash price, so we tax 100 bucks on it and see if somebody gives him slightly more suggests he wants the money fast right mm-hmm. um so he's pricing it at a hundred dollars more than the highest buy than, list than highest buy list okay so you know it suggests it's price to move yeah it, it also suggests maybe he's not a hundred percent confident that there's immediate short-term upside so how confident are you if you believe that retail is four thousand but it's hardly ever in stock Facebook deals are happening in the 2500 to 3000 range and that's where a lot of the action is. Like the but guys like my dad never go on those groups so when they're choosing to purchase they're paying retail. So people are still paying retail. It's not like all the actions on social media. Mm-hmm. How how confident are you in those circumstances that that card get like say the ancestral recall is a confident 4000 in say 18 months. Very uh i mean overall my my opinion on any card of that nature you know any sort of unlimited power beta power whatever regardless of condition current availability uh the way things are looking right now whatever all of those i'm like yeah i I like these over time right like i think they're all going to go up even if it might uh hesitate in the short term so if i'm paying what a couple extra percent uh for over buy list to pick up a piece of basically near mint power i don't have a problem with that um i think that's pretty much the right answer assuming you have the liquid funds now again you get back into the opportunity cost debate um you know that's $2400 that you could use to buy 24 masterpieces that maybe you can get 30% on in 9 months uh, so obviously that's a better return on your money, but that's a lot more work. So it kind of depends on how much capital you have and how much energy you want to put into flipping those dollars. Yeah. And it, and it underlines how, how tricky it is, even if you know what you're doing to time the market, right? Because <laughs> I infamously unloaded my Black Lotus into a spiking Bitcoin last fall, which looked brilliant for six weeks and now looks pretty mediocre indeed, hmm. given that Black Lotus is closing in on 10 grand and Bitcoin is pretty much at the level it was when I made the trade. Yeah, that was <laughs> just, that's funny. Just, I just said, it's funny. And, and I would never have guessed that Lotus having shown steady, but relatively modest appreciation over the previous 10 years would outpace the, the surging Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For, for an extended, for an extended period. I mean, Bitcoin was so volatile even then that you could easily have convinced me that in a three month or a six month horizon, Anything could happen, but it it looks relatively certain that Bitcoin will will finish the year well behind Black Lotus. Uh, yeah, I would agree with you. Um, I would agree with you on that front. And you know, as to your other point, like yeah, you know, we could even say like, oh yeah, we know what you know, kind of what we're doing. We're some of the most knowledgeable people at this that will talk in public about it. Um, but we're yeah. still <laughs> sort of like, well. I have to weigh, like, is this worth the money? Like, it's not like a question of will the card go up, but is it the best place for my money type of thing? And like, is it my, should I be doing it elsewhere? And, you know, we don't have these answers. 
at all times. We have to stop and like think about it, consider the math, consider probability, how much effort do we want to do? So that even if you're us, there aren't necessarily snap easy answers. Yeah. And one of the things that factors in is the thing I've been talking about you know, here and there throughout the year, which is this consolidation plan I've been on where I've, I've just hit the max number of hours I can spend on MGG Finance in a week. I've got you know, 20,000 worth of stuff up for sale on eBay at any given time, but there's probably another at least that much that I could put up if I had the time to list it and, and, you know, sort it and manage it and whatever. So I've been trying to submit larger, like multi-thousand dollar buy list to both CK, like Card Kingdom and uh, Alphabet Unlimited to get into reserve list cards, mostly beta duels. I got picked up some libraries and Nether Void and Abyss and stuff like that in the spring because I, I just knew it was going to be necessary. And, and even though I believed that the appreciation on those cards would, would be under what I would get from the rest of the portfolio, I just knew I was hitting my, my ceiling. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one of the considerations in, say, moving into Ancestral Recall with the last 2,500 worth of eBay sales I made or whatever is just furthering that consolidation process. Yeah, and I, I think you kind of hit that a little before I did. In terms of, or I, let me rephrase that. I hit it before you did where I was like, I don't want to spend this much time thinking about this and dealing with this every week. And I've kind of, I, I'm not saying I'm, I've pulled back, but I uh, don't do it as much as you do on a weekly basis, I think. And I try and keep it to slightly larger items for the most part. Um, it sounds like you're kind of moving in that direction as well, just because it can be a real time sink. Um are, are you are you overdue? Do you think for a buy like a, a shelf clearing buy list? Mm-hmm. Order? Well, it's funny you mention that because uh, that's never really been quite my style, uh, and I don't know if it ever will be. But I did just pick up a collection from a friend, and normally I would uh, I would TCG basically all of it. Whereas this time I was like, okay, anytime, anywhere that the buy list with bonus is anywhere close to the TCG retail, I'm just buy listing it. Like, forget it. Like, I will lose the 5% on this card if I can just dump them all in an envelope to Channel Fireball. I already picked up put a good amount of um, credit over there with a bunch of Mizix's Masteries that I decided to just buy list. Uh, so I, almost, I only listed about half of it, whereas normally I would have done probably like 80%. Because they're all sellable cards, right? Like we're we're not talking about bulk rares. Like everything here is like three dollars and up, so everything is sellable. But I'm buy listing like half of it because I'm like I'm just going to dump it all in the channel fireball, pick like four or five cards with a huge bunch of credit, and just do that and not worry about it again. Yeah, generally speaking, I don't like I don't like posting anything for sale under twenty dollars yeah. these days, um, unless it's in a, like a place at times. If it's forty dollars, like ten times four is forty, then sure. But whenever I have to list, list something at like $8.88 or something, I'm always cringing because I just I hate spending putting the time and even prepping that envelope isn't doesn't feel worth it. Yeah, I, I it's not too bad. <laughs> well, I, you asked me while I'm in the middle of doing it and I will tell you otherwise. But I know that like the 30 or 40 minutes that I send packaging orders every other day, every third day, uh, you know, the car, you know, I'm packaging the car. I sold it for six bucks or five bucks. Uh, I paid, you know, maybe a dollar fifty. So I'm making like three or three fifty, and it's taking me all of maybe ninety seconds to do. So I know that it's worth it, uh, and I'm a little grumpy when I have to do it, but I know that ultimately it's profitable. But I'm less and less interested in that. Sure. So the mm-hmm. 
the hacking thing that went down with me last month uh, messed with my record keeping. So I've been ta- keeping a lot of it by hand before I can reassemble it in the, a new digital form. Um, so I had just a little note that I found on my desk before the episode that I was going to go through quickly. Now's as good as time as any. Uh, specifically, I wanted to call out a couple of ninja cards that moved for me that I thought you would relate to. Uh, Foil Ninja, The Deep Hours, and Foil Hagere, the, the Still Wind, both acquired in August mm-hmm. at just about $8 a piece, sold for 24 and 27 respectively. Yeah, yeah, I bet. That, that was good stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, Ma- Masterpiece, uh, Sword of Feast and Famine, sourced from Europe, uh, acquired in April for 100 or so, sold for 152 Japanese foil Maronar also acquired in Europe for about forty dollars, sold for a hundred. Hmm. Somebody paid a hundred bucks uh, for a foil Japanese Maronar. Begged me, basically. Hmm. They 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 were overseas and had to like I I had it set up so they couldn't buy it, so they arranged for a friend to have it shipped to them. Hmm. Um, foil Gitrog monsters acquired in November of twenty sixteen, so a longer hold for sure. Um, at seven dollars and outing in the mid twenties, a couple of those sold. Uh, Expedition uh, Horizon canopies have been moving again. I'm almost out. Um, there was, I think, I picked twelve of those up while you were up at GP Toronto in the in February of 2016, and uh, outing them for looks like it was about 160 a piece. That's pretty good. So, yes, yeah, like 20 or 30 percent after. Yeah, it's not it's not fantastic, but I'll take it. Um, foil secure the waste. Uh, picked those up at 10 on the basis that they were going to be used in modern uh, control decks, selling them in at the 23 to $24 level. And foil hardened scales have been flying off the shelves naturally. Oh, yeah. And we saw it t- top eight again this weekend, as we're going to get into. Picked those up March of 2017 at 14 apiece and selling them, um, sorry, 14 for a playset and selling the playsets over 90. Mm. So very tasty there. Because, of course, that card was completely ignored. When it was in standard. Yeah, I remember you liking that quite a bit uh, when it came out. And I, I liked it too, but not as much as you did. But you were really on board with it. Yeah, I had dozens of copies. I also had dozens of the non-foil, but I buy listed them this spring at $1.70, which was you know significantly up from the $0.35 cents or whatever I paid. But now the buy right. list is closer to 5 bucks. <laughs> so anybody that held, that held through or guys like DJ that might have been sitting on 100 copies or whatever just through the normal course of business... Um, have a very nice set of buy list actions to take in the near future. And uh, I also ran a, a really shitty Twitch stream the other night and popped open a Japanese box of Battle Bond that went pretty well. Um, really need to get a new webcam. That's the, the main outcome from that stream. Um, <laughs> the uh, C920s are like $30 now. Uh, I'm using a C920 and I find that it's macro and focus capabilities under three feet are just atrociously bad. Uh, I think at close range is probably the place where I've had the most trouble with it. So I, yeah. I agree. Yeah, I, I, I just can't. <laughs> I downloaded the new Logitech gaming software, which is supposed to provide additional control for all of their webcams and finicked with the fine tuning. And, and the prof from Telerian Academy told me just like flood the place with light Tried that, still can't get it to focus. I just don't think it has solid focus under five feet is the bottom line. Um, so I'm going to, I think they have a, whatever the next model up is, is supposed to be good from four inches. So I'm going to try that one. Yeah, I mean, that jives with my experience too, is that it's rough at very close range. Yeah. So uh, 
once I got the shook the Battle Bond Japanese box opening out of my system, I went ahead and sold the other two to one of our listeners. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, because, yeah, if I have those around the house, I'm going to eventually open them. So uh, picking those up at like 115 a piece and then selling them for, I got 370 for two. So uh, that works out to like 185. Got that right? Yeah, 185. Um, and that was a less than a three month hold, so that's pretty sweet. Yeah, for sure. A good little. Uh, then I decided. Then I decided to crack a Russian Kaladesh box and got a Russian foil dubious challenge. I saw that. Uh... <laughs> I was like, this this box is a total troll job. And then the very next pack was a masterpiece sculpting steel. Sure. Uh, proving yet again that Russian Kaladesh boxes are the bomb. And you got a Russian masterpiece out of it. Yeah, I wish. <laughs> that, that's what they should do next time for the Mythic Edition. Um, to, to fix this overseas problem, go ahead and say, we're going to have a Russian edition, but it only ships to Russia. Mm. We're going to have a Korean edition, but it only ships to Korea. <laughs> and people will be like, yay, they're servicing us. And then they're going to be like, oh, wait, no one in Russia is going to get any because now the, the motivation on a Russian foil masterpiece planeswalker would be so high. Imagine there was a Russian foil Liliana the Veil, and they were only going to make and sell a thousand units shipped into Russia. You'd have Russian hackers take down the entire site, control a hundred percent of the inventory, and then the price on Russian foil masterpiece Liliana the Veil would be like two grand. Uh, probably, yeah, that would be quite a uh, quite a Hasbro thing to do for sure. Um, it almost seems like what they could do a uh, random languages you know every box has a random if it has one it is a random language do that yeah i i think more more worth people understanding is that the hat one of the reasons the hasbro toy shop site doesn't ship overseas is that they are just operate operationally not um equipped to do so and it's a third-party service like I, I think the entire warehouse I, i'm pretty sure having dealt with them on toy issues in the past and having talked to people at the warehouse i ask i tend to ask pointed questions whenever whenever i'm in a client service scenario because almost without fail these days mm-hmm. it's an outsourcing group and i'm almost certain unless something has changed in the very recent future that everything to do with hasbrotoyshop.com mm-hmm. is outsourced like Hasbro obviously provides the inventory and sets the pricing and and the marketing details for the site, but the actual build and management of the site is outsourced as far as I understand it. And the warehousing and operational logistics are all outsourced. So that company just doesn't ship overseas, doesn't have those relationships set up, which is actually a major operational hassle as I covered with Cliff last week. Um, So I wouldn't hold your breath for say the next Ravnica set to suddenly ship to like Uganda or whatever. That would be something else, I gotta say. They were chipping the Uganda. All right, so we uh, ran like six topics uh, askew from our first three cards. Do you wanna... We did, yep. <laughs> <laughs> what's what's the next card on the list? Uh, well, let's see. So we did we did all the Arabians and Legend Knights, or we just did the first three? Yeah, we did the first three. Okay, so Rockhag and Elder Spawn too. There you go. Yeah. Uh, Elder Spawn being reserved list, Rook Egg not so much. Yeah, right. Reserve list adjacent, I think, was a term we had used. Sure. Um, Halls of Mist out of Ice Age, three bucks to six bucks, also reserve list, whatever. Uh, Fairy Artisans out of Commander 2016. Non foils, five to ten. 
Uh, it was only printed in Commander 2016, and it's in over 3,000 EDH decks. Uh, and let me tell you what that card does. They changed the my favorite website for looking at magic cards, by the way. And I just throwing me for a loop here, man. <laughs> Fairy Artisans is a 2-2 two, two for 4, 3 and a blue, flying. Whenever a non-token creature enters the battlefield under an opponent's control, create a token that's a copy of that creature, except it's an artifact in addition to its other types, then exile all other tokens. So basically, whenever a creature comes into the battlefield under your opponent's control, you get to turn your token into the new version. And it's an artifact. Sorry, I was yawning. Uh, yeah, that's definitely pretty legitimate, especially uh, if you can make use of the token before their new one comes in. Because like they play a creature while it's on stack, you sack the token to some effect, then it comes into play, you get the, the new token, right? Um, Which is why the commander most likely to be using it is Brea, since her primary impact is to sacrifice two artifacts and then either deal three damage to a player, give a creature minus four, minus four until the end of turn, or gain five life. Yeah. Uh, following that, animation module out of Kaladesh foils a dollar fifty to five. This is part of the modern hardened scales deck uh, combo that Zach Elsick has pioneered. It's also in twenty five hundred EDH wrecks, wreck decks, so uh, some fair EDH demand as well. This is one of those funky combo pieces that does a bunch of stuff when you jam them all together. Uh, this one in particular. Whenever one or more one one counters are placed on a permanent you control, you can pay one to make a servo token. And then you can double, you can add a permanent on a player, add a counter on target permanent or player for three mana. So like, I guess add a poison counter or it's, add a uh, filibuster counter or what have you. Well, or well, in a track, so you add planeswalker counter, loyalty yeah, counters, yeah, right? Yeah, that's the obvious um, you can You can also give people poison counters if you're one of those nasty EDH players who fools around mm. with poison. Um and the open-ended synergy on this card marked it as a long-term Dark Horse anyway, from an EDH perspective. But the fact that it's now a two-of in a major modern deck, which just topped eight again, oh, by the way, did. today. Jeez. Um, in, in, in the hands of Matt Nass, no less, <laughs> who is like, just tearing tearing up the GP scene this year. Um, multiple formats, multiple decks. Um, yeah, so Animation Module was way under the radar when it came out, much like uh, Hardened Scales was. Um, but here we have yet another plus one, plus one counters-based card with open-ended synergy, making a name for itself um, at the casting cost of one. I think the moral there is that Wizards goes back to the plus one, plus one counter well so often that it's a, a, the ability of cards that connect to that the sub-theme um, to find a home through you know, synergy interactions mm -hmm. is high. It seems to be very popular with casual players. They've talked about it before. I mean, you can just look at uh, like Shadowmore and all those cards are very popular, you know, mm -hmm. a decade later, they were popular then sort of, and they're popular now because players just really are taken with those effects. Also played in Azuri because the commanders that give you experience counters, um, you can give additional experience counters and then it really ramps up <laughs> your bonuses. <laughs> Yeah, that that's a. I was trying to think when I was chatting about it, I'm like what would be the the best counter to add another copy mm -hmm. of, uh, and that is a pretty good one to start with, I yeah. think. Experience, poison, planeswalker, loyalty counters, all pretty tasty. Okay. Yeah. Uh, following that, two copies of Dread of Night, Tempest, and Sixth Edition uh, from a, which are the only copies. The only copies uh, from about you know a couple of the bucks, one three dollars to about five or six. 
Uh, it's a legacy sideboard card against Dax, Death and Taxes. Basically, has not been reprinted since Tempest, right? Is that correct? Or 6th edition? Since 6th. Since 6th. I mean, that's well over a decade. Might even be 15 years ago. Yeah, 6th edition. Yeah, sounds about right. It, yeah. Uh, well, we just hit 25 a, years, so 6th edition, yeah, I, I would say probably, yeah, probably 10 to 15. Uh, white cre- One mana white creatures get minus one, minus one. Slam that bad boy on turn one. They are, uh, they're not going to be very happy. They're in trouble. They get to attack with first Invoker, I guess. And it was only an uncommon, I believe, but a, an uncommon from like 2006 or whatever is probably the equivalent of a mythic at this point. Yeah, I would imagine it's probably almost rarer than that, right? Like who is the, the, a lot of those would have disintegrated by now. Like sixth edition was actually in 1999. Uh, okay, so 19 years ago. So <laughs> that's a long time ago. There are there are kids who are grown up and are now in college that weren't born when this when this last was printed. <laughs> now that's something. Yeah. So you know, this was. I guarantee you, if you've been playing that long, you've got copies of this sitting around somewhere. Guarantee you, because almost every everybody was was active during Tempest, um, and from that era. And you've got a couple of these sitting around that you can now trade out for five or ten bucks as as this keeps going. The thing is, like, we don't have a set announced where this could possibly get printed. I mean, they're not going to print this. Yeah, it's real hard to put that in standard. I agree. That's not a card that you can put in people's hands because it just ruins an entire color for a year and a half. And even putting this into like an Eternal Masters 2 style set it's really powerful and limited against white decks like it's a sideboard card but it's crazy good against white decks so you have to you like it interferes with how you can design Mm -hmm. that format so it's it's a tough it almost feels like it has to be commander product or something to that effect just because it's such a weird it's one of those hate cards right that they were printing back then that they don't really print anymore can't can't be a commander product because a it's not important in commander and b um they're they're not going to put sideboard style cards in these decks given that they never give them sideboards so it's got to be a legacy style hey you could you could i mean i don't think all the cards that make it into the commander products are uh i'm gonna say appropriate um especially with the possibility that they could just design it like okay, well, here's two or three kind of hate cards that we needed to add in each color so we're gonna kind of set each deck up to be affected by that so they feel appropriate in the main deck maybe but i but of course it's not like they need they, to print dread of night so it's not like they're not going to try to if it was a 70 dollar card it'd be one thing but so i mean it's in 18 decks on edh rec Ooh. right and those are probably yeah. people that don't know what they're doing well, they're, they're, so. they're, those are people <laughs> whose friends so. are playing like white weenie edh decks all of that being the case, I, I think, A, you want to check your local stores, especially the ones that don't tend to keep things up to date to see if there's a bunch of copies of this sitting around in a binder somewhere. Um, B, this might be a spec even at current pricing. Uh, I could see that, honestly. I don't think that's totally unfounded. The problem here isn't that it's not going to get purchased. Like, it, I guess you're probably not concerned about reprints. Uh, I guess the concern is trying to sell them. Like, you're going to have to find someone to buy this, and I don't know if the volume's going to be there. You know, the volume demand, but maybe 
uh, I don't have a feel for at the moment. I mean, a sideboard card against death and taxes feels pretty narrow. I, I think if you're trying to pick one or the other, you pick the black bordered uh, Tempest version, not the white bordered sixth edition version. Uh, I would agree, other than the fact that legacy players are weird people but but there's like there's seven copies of the sixth edition version on tcg player right now and there are there's one near mint of the tempest version no one seller with four copies at seven bucks this card could easily go 10 to 15 yeah i mean if it's if it's that important in legacy then yes i completely agree as someone who knows the format better would have to kind of speak to that what would i guess what i'm a little concerned about is are there not effects that replicate this for very similar nope not that i know of i mean not necessarily white creatures get minus one minus one for one mana but like you know something along those lines it's hardly novel space so for instance in the blue black death shadow brew that is now posting up in legacy as a very important deck they run three of these in the sideboard Mm mm-hmm um and likewise basically anybody who's in black has these in the sideboard so the grixis delver builds also run it uh you know two three sometimes one copies depending on the build and you also see it show up in like ad nauseum you know basically if you're playing black and legacy you probably have some number of copies of this in the sideboard and so anybody that's you know getting into death shadow as an emerging deck needs their copies of dreadonite because death and taxes in the way the meta has shifted has become more important. Um, and so this isn't a weird situation. I mean, we could, 18 months from now, we could be re- revisiting that this is a $20 card. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to tell you that that's wrong. Um, and if you can get them for two or three bucks, and I think that that's totally fine. And even, you know, five locally might be totally fine. Cause c- can we agree that not only are we on schedule for a modern themed master set next year of some sort but like if you had to choose between an eternal masters product in the next year and a modern masters product even though they said that they weren't going to do them like that anymore yeah, whatever which would you guess which modern guess? right because we got modern masters two years ago uh well in 2017 uh, uh and we just got iconic masters and masters 25 both were which not really modern oriented and, and if i was doing it the way I would do it, I was I would come up with some rando theme for the set um, or call it competitive masters or something and stock it with mostly modern reprints, some new cards. This is one of the things that I think really we've talked about before that I've always thought will reinvigorate the master's product line specifically. If they've had new cards and commander sets for so long, why can't a master set hold five to ten new cards yeah. designed for the formats that it services? Yeah, I mean, this was the first thing, one of the first things I said when they announced Modern Masters in 2013 was, you're not getting new cards now, but you will eventually. This is their vehicle to add those cards to formats. Uh, so I agree, you're, it's going to yeah. come. Yeah, so I mean, if I had to put my money, I'd say there's going to be a mixed for theme, like mixed focus format servicing set in the next year, probably in the spring of 2019. That includes a bunch of master modern reprints and some legacy and EDH stuff. And that's where this kind of thing could show up. And, but it would probably, I, I think it would have to get rare shifted. Uh, I mean, that would help, I suppose. I don't think you wanted it uncommon. It just, it would end up in too many sideboards and the white decks would get wrecked. 
Yeah, or I mean, you could print. I mean, you could also just print a bunch of white creatures with more than one toughness who don't really care about that type of effect. But yeah, I know. Okay, like yeah, it's weird. All right, so finishing up our list uh, an hour later, uh, Gravedigger Seventh Edition foil going from a dollar to ten dollars in theory. Notable because the targeting for Seventh Edition has been relatively relentless over the last several months. It's been going on for years, right. but now we're seeing the non rares being targeted. And I think that if you have any intention of owning any foil 7th edition stuff, that like same as with reserve list, the time to get it is yesterday. And you're not, don't need to be in any rush to sell because it's just getting sucked right out of the market. Mm-hmm. And whether that is the same people that we're targeting, you know, same crowd of broad people across many different locations that have been targeting hard to find magic cards and trying to make money on them for years. You know, the core of the MGG finance community combination of speculators and vendors or seventh edition foil collectors, just draining, draining, draining the barrels. You know, every year there's another 50 guys that want to finish a foil seventh set. And eventually there's just nothing left. Um, Always worth going through local binders. I found tons of good deals on foil seventh stuff, just gallivanting around the countryside this summer. And, um, Relatively easy to move if you post them at a good price. So you see foil commons in a set start jumping from a dollar to ten dollars. You got to sit up and take notice. Yeah, and even if this is sort of the uh, distributed efforts of a uh, one or two guys who are you know trying to do this sort of manually, uh, it doesn't change the fact that they're buying them, that they're not available anymore, and that there won't be any available for the cheaper prices. So like you know, yes, the prices will fall. Uh, slowly if this is sort of more forced but uh you know when we're talking about seventh edition foils i don't think that um <clears throat> they're really going to fall back down at all even if this is sort of a slightly more artificial effort um simply because yeah, talk- just you can't add them you can't add them back to the market yep and there's no and there's no suitable replacement it, it, this is one of these rare, rare cases where no matter how many times the cards in question get reprinted like you're going to see gravedigger for years yep it doesn't matter. Foil seventh is a, is a thing. It's not quite summer magic or alt fourth or whatever, but it's a thing, mm-hmm. and it's gonna it's gonna continue to be a thing. I, I talked about it with Cliff last week about how there's a guy that follows me that's been has like dozens of copies of Foil seventh Final Fortune. Yes, yeah, you and told like, me about it. He buys them every week, right? Yeah, yeah, like every week he's posting pictures of his the new ones he's bought. So multiply that guy by you know t- even just fifty other bodies, and that explains a lot. That's so funny. <laughs> All right, so top mover of the week, Arcbound Worker out of Modern Masters. Foils going from a dollar to ten dollars, nine hundred percent gain again because it's a four of in the hardened scales deck in Modern. I went looking for these after uh, the deck first showed up, and there was basically no foils left. You know what was that? Two weeks ago now, three weeks ago, um, and you were paying a good chunk for them now. And I, I don't think you were paying much less than ten. I think they might have been seven or eight dollars for the copies I found. Uh, but I mean, not surprising. You have a card that's that old. Um, you know, I, well, I shouldn't say that old, but rather has had very little demand, but suddenly shows up in a very cool modern deck. Uh, seems like the deck could be real. Um, you know, it has had chops in the past. Like we know the Arcbound Worker was a good card. Uh, people did play it before. So we know that it's generally strong enough to hang around or could be. So. Surprising, I suppose. Well, I mean, it, as long as the Hardened Scales deck stays true, um, again, we don't have a product where this is likely to get reprinted um, anytime soon, depend, pending news of a, ma- a new master set. And you can still get like 
foil copies of this onesie twosie over in Europe for under two bucks. So that's certainly worth a look. I It's also probably worth looking back at the original printing, which is from Dark Steel, and seeing if there are some foreign copies, because the reprint, of course, being in a master set, was only printed in Japanese, English, and simplified Chinese. So, um, you know, things like German and, and Russian foil copies would be exceedingly rare. Oh, God, yeah. I But, you know, there's no way those have been on the market at all beyond the only the smallest of quantities even prior to this because i mean affinity did used to run that card right like uh i think modern started with that card in it and when modern started and affinity was there i think it ran arc workers at that time because they just ported the like the original affinity strategy so those should be long gone not to say that they'll it's never exist no- but yeah it's also notable that calling this a common is again a misnomer because these your rarity is relative to the the time period um you know how long ago you were printed and to the extent to what extent any reprints were in mass-produced sets so given that dark steel was over a decade ago and a common from that era is probably roughly equivalent to an uncommon maybe even a rare from a modern set and given that its only reprint and foil was a modern master set and modern masters 2013 was famously underproduced um as they were just testing the waters for that product line um there are you know very few of these foils around not pretty particularly hard to drain them at all um okay so that was a nice 45 minute first section for uh like nine cards um thank Thank God I, I produced that to 12 curves. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's let's uh, let's hop along here uh, to segment two, our cards to watch. Uh, can you get us started with your first card this week? Yep. Black, red, hollow one, just top eight, top eight at another GP today at GP Detroit in the team uh, modern uh, tournament. The results from that tournament have to be taken with a little, a little grain of salt because I, I'm pretty sure that as a team format tournament, they weren't allowed to overlap cards, right? So that's yeah. so that certainly warps the metagame a little. Um, but uh, Black Red Hollow One looks like uh, uh, it's going to be hanging around Modern for a while. It's a powerful, explosive deck that can do well on any given weekend, as is true of you know many different decks now in Modern. Um, the Hollow One foils are sitting in and around five dollars. Uh, supply is not particularly deep. I think it's pretty likely that as long as this deck keeps posting up results every so often, you're going to get in at five and out in the 12 to 15 range, say a year from now. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, hollow one is looking good. It's very stable. Uh, it just keeps coming and coming and coming. We've seen it in a couple different shells now in modern. It's not even just the one shell uh, that we've seen it played. And there's a couple different Delve strategies or dredge strategies that make use of it. Uh, not going to get a reprint for several years. So I think 10 to 12 bucks is right where it would land. That would put it kind of on par with where blood gas was, has been floating around for a long time, um, which is probably a pretty good comparison. So I'm, I'm right there with you. All right. Uh, I mean, the one thing I don't like about it is that it's very much a one trick pony. It's not an important card in other formats. So if it falls out of favor in modern and you start, you see it fall out of the metagame, then you're going to get stuck holding. Yeah. I mean, that's true. That's definitely true. Uh, but like, Leyline of the Void is like a $40 card uh, to fight one-trick ponies, and it has been for a long time. I don't know. It's just like, it's one trick, but it's a real good trick. I mean, frankly, you could say Affinity is too, right? Like, Affinity is kind of the same same mm-hmm. thing. Well, I mean, one of the things uh, I think is interesting about Amonkhet block 
is that because people aren't particularly enamored with the invocations and the, and if you don't hit an invocation, you are really wrecked on those boxes. Like, I don't know if you've seen this, but there are deals where vendors like Channel Fireball have been offering um, the equivalent of Am- Amonkhet block boxes for like, I think, 30 or $40 over top of the cost of a Guilds of Ravnica box. Like you get like a, an, a, a rotating booster box thrown in for like nothing. I, did, I think I saw that. Yeah. Which yeah. Is... So, I mean, that, that, that suggests to me that an interesting principle that I don't think we've ever explored on this cast, which is that a, a bad set with some good cards in it. And another one that comes to mind is like Dragon's Maze. Oh, is it Dragon's Maze? What, what, whatever, <laughs> whatever amount of product, uh, another good one would be something like Journey into Nyx, right? Yeah. Um, whatever amount of product is is locked up in sealed booster boxes, it will rot forever. And it is essentially subtracts the, that amount from the total amount printed. So let's say that there was 10 million of something printed in set X. And 35% of that inventory never got sold because the set didn't wasn't didn't contribute to standard in a significant way um, or um, it was overproduced or whatever. And so 35% of that inventory is locked into warehouses and back rooms at stores and they try to blow it out, but it never really moves. And it trickles, trickles, trickles into the marketplace, hardly ever getting opened. It's as though significantly less of that product was ever opened. It also means that it's really hard to go searching for, you know, whatever expensive card uh, manifests from those sets, something like uh, uh, Voice of Resurgence at its peak. You know, when if you, a Voice of Resurgence was going for 40 or 50 bucks at one point because it was the only thing of any value in Dragon's Maze. And so it sucked up all of the the estimated value. Mm-hmm. Um, and similar things can happen with cards from sets that are people are not interested in opening. And so the difference between something like, I think, a Hollow One foil and, say, a Panharmonicon foil is that there are more of a fall set made than a summer set, generally speaking. And because Kaladesh has the inventions, which are arguably the most important of the Masterpiece series to date, um, the and there's so many other good things in that set, the odds that a player is going to want to draft a box of Kaladesh down the road versus a box of Hour of Devastation or Amonkhet is significantly higher, which means that the good cards from the bad sets have probably uh, more upward pressure. Yes, and that manifests early too, right? Like that would manifest in Amonkhet, or or should I say the place to take advantage of that is roughly now, maybe a little, you know, in this general time period where the boxes are still dirt cheap and the prices haven't adjusted yet. because then you just end up with the voice for resurgence thing where it is that expensive. Uh, but in that, that, that the fact that there's 10 to 40% of the inventory rotting in sealed boxes uh, gets factored into that price relatively quickly. It does not take six years for that to be figured out. Uh, that will come to bear within, I would say what a year or two for that, for the real. It's supply. probably, probably probably one of the reasons that the hollow one foils are already yeah. as rare as they are comparative to something like dominaria which was like probably sold the best out of the last three years worth of sets if i had to guess um you know people were really excited last spring about dominaria and opened a ton of that product and dominaria draft mm-hmm. was well regarded so all of that contributes to foil rares from dominaria being probably significantly more populous and i bet if we ran some numbers we could figure you know at at 
you know, close to rotation for Dominaria versus close to rotation for Hour of Devastation, you could you could say, here's a rare with a roughly similar demand profile, and lo and behold, it's got 50% more copies still on the market, despite being about... Yeah, I'd be popular. really curious what TCG player, data TCG player has on that, because they have an insight like very few companies do. <laughs> that, 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 yeah. Even, I'll, I'll, I almost wonder if uh, Wizards contacts them for data. Like, it seems like it could be that difficult. Like, because Wizards doesn't have a mainstream retail platform to go to, right? Like, they have the numbers of the cards they sell to distributors or they provide the distributors, but they don't have massive single sales. Data. They have, they know, they know the print runs, but they don't have the yeah, single so sales. So, I wonder, I do wonder if, uh, if they've ever like approached TCG player and asked them for that type of information. It's a valuable piece of data to mm-hmm. negotiate around. Yeah. Um, okay. So that was your first card. We are, you're really, uh, we, we scheduled this so that I would have enough time to edit the cast before I went to bed tonight, but you were doing your damnedest to make sure that does not come to fruition. The fastest finance. <laughs> All right. Um, my first pick this week, uh, is going to be Ramunap Excavator. I'm looking at the promo copies, specifically the buy box promos. You can grab those for about four bucks right now. Uh, you will find this card in about five and a half thousand EDH rec decks. Most notably of late, Lord Windgrace really likes this card. Get Rock Monster before it really liked it. This is the Crucible Worlds on a stick, by the way, if you weren't sure. Um, definitely a a powerful effect. I mean, Crucible Worlds has been a million bucks forever, despite having been reprinted a couple times because it's so good. Putting it on a creature is uh, ultimately probably a little bit better. You can tutor for it. You can reanimate it. You can do that. You can clone it. Uh, it's a, their little creatures are more flexible in magic than artifacts tend to be. Um, the promo art, I think, is better than the pack foils. And there's not there's not going to be as many, right? Because it's the buy a box promo uh, for Amonkhet again, uh, which probably didn't sell. I mean, certainly didn't sell the way that Dominaria did or, or Kaladesh or what have you. Uh, and I think most people who build a deck with green in EDH are going to, at one point, consider Ramanup Excavator. Um, and it's just going to keep getting played and played and played in the same way that Oracle Maldaya did, which is now like a $30 or $40 card. Now, I'm not telling you Ramanup Excavator is going to hit 40 bucks, but it is going to see a lot of play because it's a very useful creature. And it, it's it's on theme with Lord and Windgrace, but decks that aren't on theme with that will still want the effect. So I think you're just going to see a nice steady increase of, on, of price on this card for months, just months and years. It's just going to keep going. Like until, they're, until they reprint it, that price is just going to tick up 50 cents or a dollar, what have you, every single month. Uh, and a reprint will slow the velocity and will probably take a little off the top of the promo. But if they reprint it with the pack foil art in like Modern Masters 2019 or 20. 21 or whatever um it's not going to hit the the promo that hard because it will be still be a unique product despite that well so so long as they won't they refuse to print uh commander sets with foils well no, but i'm saying but the, themselves, but the promo has the, its own art right so as long as they don't use that art it's still like its own special thing i mean on the art topic i think both of them are mediocre i'm not even sure which one i hate more um but it's 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 definitely that question and not which one do i love more sure um and and certainly i think we can both agree that if there was only one version of the foil then original pack foil crucible on a stick is an auto win um that because there are two versions of it there is twice the inventory in the market roughly uh i i agree with you that the that they're pretty close but 
Um, either one I think is reasonable. There's a, they're a little cheaper for the promo foils. They can get them around four bucks, whereas the pack foils are going for six or seven. So there might be more meat on the stick. Um, I think it's a longer hold, right? Like this is probably 12 to 18 months, not something you're going to flip inside a year. No, I mean, it could, uh, but I, yes, you're not expecting a turnaround time that fast. Um, I agree with you. It's, it's, it's a, this is going to increase a, reasonable or appreciable amount every couple months every month uh and it's just going to kind of keep doing that and it'll there'll be you know some jumps plateau jump plateau that type of thing but there's not going to be a huge surge with the skyrockets in price uh for most likely it's just going to be you know pick your point on this treadmill that you want to get on so apparently it was a draft weekend promo, not a buy a box promo per se, but I'm I'm not 100% on that. But more interestingly, oh, really? the Card Kingdom uh, buy list prices on this are very encouraging. Like this is similar to the, the discussion about the Ancestral Recall where buy list is so close to what you can get in on it at, there's almost no risk. Like if you decide you've made a wrong turn or you've got a better opportunity later, you want to redirect the, the value towards the pack foils. Card Kingdom's already offering 350 in cash, 455 credit, and the pre-release foils they're offering 450 uh, cash, 585 credit, and the promo version that you've picked out they're offering 365, 475 credit. So almost no downside. Is there is there another copy of this card that I missed? Okay, okay. So there's oh, there's the pre-release because it's a it's a rare, so it can show up as the the pre-release foil version. Okay, that's what we're looking at. Okay. But that's that's the same art as the pack foil with the little gold stamp that people that I think we've established over time. People are is going to be the last one to pop, generally speaking. Yeah, I think the the buy box promo is, they're both a little goofy, right? But I thought the colors on the buy box promo were better, a little more vibrant. Yeah. Anyway, uh, as you said, a card with a lot of open ended synergy in EDH. Windgrace loves it. Over time, these are just going to drain out of the market. Might take two or three years, but I think it's you probably end up flipping them in the, like you said, twelve. I think anywhere in the ten to fifteen dollar range is is reasonable. And you might just if you get a pile of them, you probably just buy list them. Yes, yeah, yeah, that would be my plan. You know, if you buy ten to thirty or plus of these, uh, and they do go, you know, you did pick up pick them up, and they're ten dollars retail and eight dollars buy list. Just buy list them, take the 30% credit for 11 bucks a piece. And then now you've got 300 bucks in store credit that costs you, you know, $40 two years ago. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that we can get these even cheaper over in Europe would be my guess. And I have a feeling that on eBay, I bought some Russian uh, ramming up excavators. And let's just see, what did I pick them up for? It was about the same price, actually. The Russian promos? Yeah. Um, a little more. I prefer the Russian foil Ramonek Excavator promos. I paid eight US. That's still pretty good. You might be able to get mm-hmm. up to 30 or 40 on those if you're lucky. Yeah. Um, I was actually offered, uh, is it Hour of Need? Hour of Devastation? The, or the, no, no, no. Oh, the card. The. the yeah, the blue card that was just a big deal. The box top, the box topper for M19. Nexus of Fate. Thank you. So Nexus of Fate, Russian foils. I that I some guy tried to for two part story. First, somebody tried to rip me off on eBay, and I'm eight for eight this year, fending those off. By the way, and maybe we'll talk about how to do that next week. Um, I don't sell on eBay. <laughs> 
Uh, well, I mean, the same thing can happen on TCG player, but it's really about how you handle the conversation. Yeah. Um, because what I found with eBay reps is you can, they will come on side if you can let the other people trip over mm-hmm. themselves. Uh, second point being, I was offered uh, Nexus of Fate Russian foils at like $10 a piece yesterday out of Russia. And that seems like some people would look at that and go, oh, they're trying to get rid of them. Like, I don't want to touch this. It's toxic. But I think that that's the market overreacting to how the price has collapsed without really knowing whether there are going to be fogs in the next couple of sets that rejuvenate that deck in standard and people forgetting that this could still pop up as a problem in, well, problem or a solution, depending on how you view it in modern and or EDH. I mean, as an EDH card alone, this thing would have had legs in the long term. And Russian foils, I mean, Russian foils are generally rare, but when they were only given away with boxes, how many do you think exist yeah. of of that card out of Russia? Like number of Russian LGSs you can count on a couple dozen fingers. And then how many max copies could they have been sent? 10. So there might be literally less than a thousand copies. Yeah, I don't, I, I would guess it's probably a little more than that. Uh, if only because Wizards would have printed them. Um, so they might be just sitting in like a distributor's warehouse or something. I don't exactly know how those flow uh, unless Wizards only lets one out of the building per box type of thing. Well, I, I would think I would think the foreign foil sheets are multi-language. Uh, Makes sense, right? Probably, yeah. And then they're cut, they're cut and pack and put into the packs and sent off to distribution points around the world. So does it, but what does that mean for the, I guess, excess supply that's available that didn't get sold with the boxes? Well, it means I don't think there would be much of that because I think that they can structure the, like, if, if you know you only want to print like a thousand copies of the Russian and the Korean or something and the German, then you can just put them on a sheet together and run X sheets and you're done. Mm. And you're, and, or, or the, or the sheet, the English sheet I can't remember how many cards are on a sheet, but let, you could just say that 85% of the sheet is English and the foreign ones are cut off the English sheet from the last row or something. You know what I'm saying? Like you can easily adjust those proportions and then it's just, you're just running one, one print run. And yeah. Then, I, I don't know enough about the way they handle print runs to know if that's reasonable or not. If that might give them coalition issues uh, such that like they end up having to put them all on one sheet. But I feel like there's been more discussion of foreign language print sheets in the past that I just don't. Uh, we aren't, we, I haven't been the person having those conversations. Other people might've been. So I would have to know more. Yeah. I guarantee you we can track somebody down on Facebook. Who's a expert on this topic for reasons. unknown. <laughs> yeah. I have somebody in mind as well, who probably has a pretty good idea, but uh I don't know. Maybe if we think about it, we could talk about that one week. Bottom line, Ramanap Excavator, good pick. Uh, Let's move through the rest of these. Sure. Um, Flooded Strands, the Nationals version that uh, is now, um, you know, Nationals are essentially finished now um, or very close to it. Um, I think maybe it goes on for another week or two, but that's it. Um, This Flooded Strand has already been tapping out, uh, first of all, low inventory in North America because U.S. Nationals was a while back. And we talked about how the Flooded Strand is going to be, is probably going to hold a premium price tag here because you have the biggest uh, set of Magic players anywhere in the world, probably located in the U.S., um, uh, per capita, and total number. And But Nationals is only a few hundred players. 
So that means for a huge percentage of the Magic population, there was actually a very low inventory of these cards versus the total number released globally, because unlike something like the Mythic Edition, which is going to be centered in North America and sorry, in in the US and Canada, meaning that it will be at a premium price tag in Europe and and elsewhere. Um, We have the opposite situation with the flooded strands because they were distributed globally where every nationals got you know, probably anywhere from 50 to 300, depending on the size of the of the country's funnel. Um, but most of those copies are therefore necessarily located outside the US. So the biggest selling platforms in the US are going to have a relative, relatively low uh, inventory of this card. And we're seeing that already, even though Nationals was just a month ago. And hence, the card is already going for 80 to 90 here, but we can pick it up in Europe for like 40 bucks. So I've already picked up a bunch. I'm probably going to pick up a bunch more. Um, Facebook groups in Europe are a good place. If you are, you know, you haven't set up your relationships over there yet, that this might be the opportunity to get in on buying 10 or 12 of something and getting it all shipped together. Um, you know, Europe is still ripe, ripe with opportunities. And if you're going to be, you know, if you're interested in this card or you're interested in what's going to happen with the mythic, mythic edition, Trade in both directions is open to you. You've just got to make yeah, a friend. Yeah, I saw that you put this on our sheet, and I was kind of annoyed. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm like, James is giving it up, some? man. This was like, this is this is one of the ones that, like, we we the two of us like on after the cast like two weeks ago, we're like, oh, we kind of just bumped into yeah. it while we were chatting about something else, and we're, we both kind of at the same time we're like, maybe this is worth looking at, and then we pulled it up in Europe. We're like, oh shit. You know, I remember doing the research the next day on the Nationals numbers and, real, you know, we were kind of realizing the distribution quirk here. And I think, I don't think you mentioned, yeah. and unless I glazed over, I don't think you mentioned what we kind of thought was really curious, was it the in, uh, likelihood that this will be part of a series? So right, right now you have uh, yes. promo flooded strands that kind of have this cool art, right? Kind of unique. Uh, it's a flooded strand, but what if next year's nationals, they do the Verdant catacombs and now players are going, Oh, there's going to be a set of these. Uh, and it's going to take like five years for them to release or however, you know, however they do it. Uh, and every time they release a new fetch, people are going to go back and try and pick up the old ones to, to complete it. So these could get wild down the road. Now, am I planning on holding on to the, you know, if I pick any up, I have zero right now, by the way. If I plan on picking any up, do I want to hold on to them for five years? Probably not. Uh, probably not. But it does seem like you would get a bump in price on this every time they release a new one as players go back and, you know, kind of want to finish their sets or even, you know, just one ofs or whatever they want to do. Uh, so definitely seems like the type of card that's going to get a good, a good, uh, a good bump every year, essentially. Well, this is like the penultimate, like, the template for European specs that that we've been working on for the last year and a half or so is a card where similarly to the masterpieces, when we get, got in on those, when we were looking at masterpiece silvering, it was already selling for 150 to 200 when we were picking up for, for like 80 or 90 in Europe. So we knew that we could probably unload it at a modest profit, no matter what, if you were say getting 150 minus fees, you were maybe making 20 or $30 on a hundred at in the worst case, depending on how, you know, currency and, and fees and everything worked out, but we thought there was upside. So like anytime you've got this, like if you're, if your backstop is buy list, that's one opportunity. If your backstop is arbitrage, you know, from one region to another, that's another opportunity. And then you're hoping that in the place that you're selling into, there might be upside six months out that goes well, well beyond where you are when you start, but you know that you've got a decent outcome no matter what. 
yeah, now I have to, now I know what I'm doing at work tomorrow. <laughs> uh, He's gonna, you're going gonna to edit, edit deliberately after you snipe yours? No, I meant uh, I am going to have to go buy the copies that I was hemming and hawing and thinking about tomorrow because I'm not going to have much longer before. I mean, I don't, there's not going to be a run on these. We don't have the uh, listenership to generate that much demand that fast. And also, it's not like I'm telling, we're talking about a card on TCG player. But uh, I mean, you know, this might be the cat getting out of the bag, as they say. I, I think every time we spend 10 minutes talking about Europe, we, we encourage like less than five fingers worth of people to go. So it might be like half a person, right? Sure. Because we probably Anywhere get roughly the range. same listenership every week. So, like, how many people this time are going to choose to do it that didn't do it last time? I can't imagine it's very much. Yeah. There's a lot of you that go, oh, yeah, I got to get on Europe. And then you go right back to Netflix. Yeah. Which is fair because it's <laughs> annoying sometimes. Okay. You, you don't want to end up like Travis having to send your shipping partner f- refrigerators. In the <laughs> I, I, so, <laughs> I, I, the guy who, who I have been coordinating <laughs> with is awesome. He's AI. I, really uh could not be happier with our arrangement um he's a cool yeah, dude. i really i really do like him but it is funny because uh we we kind of refreshed our some funds in both directions and he's like hey i'm gonna send a couple things your way and this was like last week and i was like okay sure sounds good so like eight bunko pops show up at my door <laughs> and like half <laughs> of them are rick and morty i'm like come on, come on really like this this is what you want sent over there is Funko Pops but that's fine that's fine it's what he's into it's just funny uh next will be anime DVDs I'm sure <laughs> just uh, now I want to get now, now I want to get hammered and watch Rick and Morty in German or something I'm sure it's extra hilarious uh yeah I bet all right so my second card this week uh is cryptic command uh the uh Magic Players Rewards promos, um, something that a lot of people probably don't even know exists, uh, or they might have seen one and been like, what the hell is that? So it used to be back in the day, Wizards had this program called Magic Player Rewards. And every time you played in an event where you registered your DCI, you would kind of get points. And I don't remember the exact details, you know, kind of how they handled it. But essentially, at the end of each season, Based on how many points you had earned, they would send you cards. And so if you showed up to, you know, a handful of FNMs over the course of three months, they might send you like a common or something. Uh, but the good rewards were pretty special. So those full art textless lightning bolts, those were magic player rewards. Um, right? Or were those FNM? No, I think pretty sure those were magic player rewards. All the all the real good NPR stuff was textless full art. So there's like mortify. Um, and Putrefy, which, by the way, uh, are a perfect example of why they stopped doing Texas full art promos. Because even the most seasoned Magic veteran will look at them like, okay, which one was which? Uh, but anyways, there's a Cryptic Command version that's very cool, full art Texas Cryptic Command. Uh, pretty wild for a card like Cryptic Command. They have no text, but truthfully, easier to remember the four modes than distinguishing between Putrefy and Mortify. Copies are in and around 70-ish right now. Now, I got a couple caveats here for you. One is I own, I don't know, five or six. I own some some number, some number less than 10, I think. So I do have some. Second, I'm pretty sure I wrote about this card like four years ago. Like I saw the card at 50 or 60 bucks. I bought several. I said, hey, I picked up some. There's still some out there. I really do think these are a good choice. 
there was a bit of a price bump on them a while ago, a couple years ago, and they kind of deflated. And these aren't very much more than what I paid for them four or five years ago. Uh, that being said, over the last four or five years, cryptic command in blue and modern in general has been pretty flaccid, right? Like we haven't had a real control deck, especially a blue control deck in modern for a while. They've kind of come in various flavors and Scapeshift played them a little bit at times and what have you, but it just wasn't a component. We got Jason Mind Sculptor back. You saw blue come back a little bit more. We've got Teferi now. You're seeing more blue in modern. Jeskai has been playing them. So we're, we've seen definitely a resurgence in that archetype in modern in the last several months. And I and I think that's probably going to perpetuate too because um, they've got some new tools and Cryptic Command has been a big part of it. So there's not very many copies out there. The price tag's a little high, 60, 70 bucks. Uh, but I do really think that these are poised again to bump up. And I think $100 is, is not hard at all. Uh, and I would say between 120 and 150 is a pretty reasonable landing place for them. There's a lot of crypto commands out there, but there's only one textless full art copy and you're not getting another one. Yeah, I, I distinctly remember an old chestnut from somebody in the MTG finance community years back when I was first getting into things talking about how this wasn't a good spec because um, nobody can would ever be able to remember, trust themselves to remember the four modes on the card and they would end up it would end up costing you games. Which probably has a little hmm. bit of truth to it, but I remember buying the. I, I can look at my records right now, and um, while you were describing this, and see that on in December of 2016, I bought these at 32. I sold them in February of this year in the mid 70s. Um, pretty solid return on the last time they cranked up. Um, since then, they have retreated just slightly, um, and it's one of these cases where they're yeah they're going to print Crypto Command again, but they're not going to print this specific version again. So. Mm-hmm. demand will outpace supply over time and whether you're holding this for six months or 24 months is probably the only question ultimately these yeah these they, go up they've they've jumped a little bit then they've receded then they've jumped and they've receded but i think the the more recent change that brings my attention to it again that's different this time than it was six months ago a year ago two years ago is the rise of blue in modern in a way we haven't seen in any of the prior instances, yep. especially with Fairy and Jace. That feels like that could be the part of the equation that was missing. Yeah. I'm not making any promises here, you guys, but this is just kind of my my sense here. Yeah, and between you're right, between Jeskai and Blue White, there are at least two viable builds, both of which are top banning on a semi regular basis. Cryptic Command is now in the top twenty of all spells played in modern. Um not creature, non creature spells. Um and for a four casting cost spell that has three blue in it, that's an accomplishment. Um, testifies to the power of the card. So I like the spec. Um, good choice. I'm going to wrap up this week with uh, Wooded Foothills, the Judge Foils, in and around $100. Wooded Foothills is the fifth most played uh, land in modern, and that includes basics. Um, supply is pretty short in the $100 range. I expect this to accelerate up towards the Expedition version. There are people that prefer one or the other. Um, and the expeditions are sitting in the like 150, 160, 170 range, depending on who's selling. Card Kingdom offers a backstop of 95 cash, 124 in credit. So there's very little risk at the $100 price point and every reason to believe that you could get out of this uh, in six months in a reasonable state. God, at, at, at $100 to buy in, 
and $125 in credit. You can essentially trade $100 cash for 125 credit at, uh, you know, that's, what was it? CK, is that what you said, or cool stuff? One of them, one of those. Card stores. Kingdom, Card Kingdom, Card Kingdom, yeah. So, like, you can kind of just flip them, uh, you know. And if you can find something on CK that's worth spending that money on, I mean, that's a really good deal. Uh, so just having that that vector alone, and this is hardly the only card you can do that with, but if you're like, oh, I think these might actually go up in price to catch up with the expeditions, and even if they don't, the worst case scenario is I traded $1 for $1.25 uh, a bunch of times um, and for credit, which I then used to buy something that I thought had a good price tag, you know, something was a little underpriced, which then I can sell over here and kind of, you know, flip that over to this vendor and pick up some more store credit or what have you. Uh, and you can kind of snowball that pretty good. So um, you can definitely <clears throat> play a game where you put 100 bucks, whatever, into magic and you just snowball credit back and forth. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure there are people that do this and you can you can get that ball rolling pretty big. Um, and I actually used to do it here and there. Uh, and the reason I stopped was a it was a it was more work than some of the other choices I had at the time, and B I had one of the vendors whose name escapes me, uh, and I'm sure if you look through my Twitter history, you can find me having written several tweets where I got very angry and yelled at them, <clears throat> changed a bunch of their buy list prices, and I was very pissed because I had spent like 150 bucks on a bunch of cards, sent them, submitted their buy list for those cards, and then they're like, oh, actually we changed the price on those. Uh, I was really annoyed. Uh, but as long as you don't get nailed with that, then it's very effective. Uh, and you can avoid that by, avoid, you know, just don't do like weird small cards that they probably didn't update their price on. Just go with stuff that's you know is real that they just haven't, you know. The, the price is correct. It's not a mistake, essentially. And you, you'll know what those are. Well, and one of the things you can do at Card Kingdom is you can actually buy cards on credit and when you go to pay, you can say that I'm going to send you some cards to pay for this. And they will hold your order until your buy list arrives. Hmm. That's kind of nifty. That's nuts, right? Because <laughs> you can pin down your target and make sure you don't lose sight of it during the intervening week. Yeah, that is cool. I did not know that that was an option. Yeah. So there's a couple of interesting things here. Um, Wooded Foothills, I think, is insulated in the same way as Flooded Strand from... Uh, being reprinted in the next year because the cons block foil uh, uh, cons block fetches are much are not nearly as um, needed in the market right now as the uh, Modern Masters 2017 uh, Zendikar fetches right so like Scalding Tarn is you know in danger of topping a hundred dollars if it doesn't see a reprint in 2019. And as a result, I think it's much more likely that we see Zendikar fetches next year than it is that we see cons. Um, so Foothills has some breathing space there. The only interfering point, there, therefore, as per your earlier comment on the Flooded Strand being the start of a series, is if the second one was Wooded Foothills, then this particular spec may get derailed. If Wooded Foothills is, is eventually printed as a Nationals card, say, three years from now, you got plenty of time. But if it's the 2019 card then you're going to want to be able to exit before it shows up because otherwise you know that's going to give people another option and if it's zach stellard again people may decide to lean in that direction mm -hmm. he did a really good job with that uh that flooded strand he's a good guy too yeah. but if you're creating a set 
you pr- I mean, you probably use the same artist for the rest of the set. Not necessarily so, but I'm um, you I'm, I'm I uh, I'm good friends with uh, one of his family members. I should <laughs> I love maybe I'll uh, try to get him drunk next time I sure. see him and see what I can dig out of him. <laughs> Actually, I, so uh, what's the last painting you did? Did it have red red or like trees or mountains or what? Let like, me clarify. I have actually attempted for real on multiple occasions to ply his family member with alcohol to get him to spill. And he hasn't. And it really annoys me. (laughs) All right. Let's quickly get through Metagame Week in review. Um, Grand Prix Detroit was a relatively smallish Team Modern tournament. Didn't seem to do that well uh, in terms of viewers this weekend on Twitch either. Um, But the top 12 decks, because it's a top four, not a top eight, with uh, four teams of three. Um, Uh... The Channel Fireball team was running Bant Spirits, Hardened Scales Affinity, and Black Red Hollow One. They came in second, I believe. There was a team with Blue White Control, Mardu, Pyromancer, and Infect. Um, a team with Humans, uh, Scape Shift, and Blue White Control. And then a team with Humans, Green Tron, and Jeskai Control, which I believe won the tournament. Um, now, now again, because the meta, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that between the team, they can't have overlapping cards. That obviously impacts which decks are going to rise to the forefront. So the thing to focus on in a situation like that is the con- the composition of the decks um, versus how they would be in a normal modern tournament and make sure that you don't react to cards that are only um, slotted in um, because of the need to not share cards. So like in modern, a card that would come to mind that might cause problems if you say wanted to run spirits and humans would be something like Cavern of Souls, right? Because you only got four copies to split between you. If you're both running tribal synergies, then yeah. you've got problems. Um, which is why you don't see that overlap in any of these decks. Um, but these are all decks that you would expect to be doing reasonably well. It's notable that three every team was running a blue control build that w- runs Cryptic Command. So that um, relates to your earlier pick. Not sure I've got too much yeah, else to Yeah, I, I would say that this is where knowing the game is very useful. Because you can look at it and go, oh, well... <clears throat> this uh, this Mardu Pyromancer deck is playing this really distinct card choice that they normally don't play. Maybe they broke it. And it's like, uh, no, they're actually just playing a weird discard spell because the good discard- thought sees the correct discard spell was being played in their other deck and they needed to fill the gap somehow. Um, so being, you know, and recognizing the and, archetype and-, and the general strategy is more important than like, picking out specific cards that seem like they had a really good yeah and, 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 and even more likely than that I, I would imagine they actually pick decks that they don't have to change the core card choices but that it might affect sideboard choices if you think that this is a meta where in the b slot at the table you expect to see a lot of bl- like blue control blue white or jeskai then you're gonna that might in inform sideboard choices significantly differently than it would in a normal tournament yeah, and they definitely choose decks that they know are less likely to step on each other's toes, right? They're not going to play Jund and Abzan and then fight over spells. They're going to do things like play Humans and Tron because they don't share a single card type, a single card. So that makes sense, um, which also, like you said, distorts sideboarding because I can go, okay, well, I know Tron is not does not share any cards with any decks in the format. So Tron is going to be a really good choice for most teams because it gives them essentially a free deck, right? Like it's, it, you know, it doesn't get in the way of any of their other uh, gauntlet choices um, in the way that Jun would. 
Uh, and then I'm playing weird sideboard cards to accommodate for that because I know there's a lot of Tron and or Tron, and suddenly everyone at the event has damping for damping sphere in their sideboard. It's like, well, it's not because Tron is the best deck in the formats because we everyone expected Tron to be on everyone's team. Um, which again is why we come back to it's a good you know this is a type of place where actually knowing the game and knowing how people are making their decisions is important. You have to look at beyond just the cards on your screen. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to our topic of the week. We wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about the, the, the theoretical um, method that should be applied to the concept of what magic should cost. And the reason we're delving into this this week is that there have been articles floating around in the community about um, how the average cost of key modern staples has been rising since the release of Modern Masters 2017, um, largely because in 2018, both of the Masters sets coming out of, well, between Iconic Masters and Magic 25th were nostalgia-based sets that didn't necessarily have room for a bunch of modern staples, and we didn't see a, very many of them pop up in uh, standard specific sets. And so heading into 2019, there is um, pent up demand for, you know, 20 or 30 cards that are likely to spike if they don't see a reprint. Um, and I asked Saffron Olive on Twitter this weekend what he thought the average cost of a modern deck should be. And he snapped off 500 to 600. Other people tabled their own opinions on what the number should be. And what I found fascinating about not any particular number that was tabled, but the you know intellectual rigor that was being applied to the topic was that A, people weren't really stepping back to look at the big picture. A lot of this was like being driven by anecdotal evidence, like such and such a card used to be this and now it's this, so that must be wrong. Um, or this is what I want to pay for format X. And... I wanted to, you know, take the opportunity to explain some of the concepts that I think are useful for people to have in their back pocket when they're engaging in the, these kinds of discussions in their own analysis to um, help inform a more structured approach to, you know, analyzing what the price of anything should be really. Um, so one of the one of the con key concepts I think is um, price elasticity. Um, because one person on Twitter suggested to me that what you could do to figure out what modern decks, quote unquote, should cost is to look at the average cost of a deck over time and historically, and then calculate an average and assume that that's what they should always cost. Now, the problem with that is that it doesn't really account for price elasticity in the demand curve. And what that refers to is whether people will pay more without any drop-off in participation. So for instance, you could have a product like a Coca-Cola, and for 100 years, you could sell it for a, a dollar on an island in the middle of nowhere land, just keep things simple. And and then one day, you somebody could decide, wake up and decide to experiment with selling it for $1.50. If the exact same number of people purchase it, and revenue jumps by 50%, and no buyers drop out of the market, then you it suggests that the price of that product is price elastic, that there you can change the price within a, a fairly reasonable sized range without affecting who should purchase it. And it suggests that the market is not yet at 
peak efficiency. For there to be peak efficiency, you should be at a point where if you were to increase the price, enough people would drop out that you would make less revenue overall. And if you haven't hit that point yet, then you have not optimized your price. And so just because a card or a deck gets from, say, $10 to $20 or the deck gets from $500 to $1,000 doesn't really tell us the whole story. You also need to know whether overall modern participation rates drop as a result of those increases in price of both decks and cards. You need to understand um, the suitability, like the, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I actually don't know. The how, how one deck could be exchanged for another and still give you the same uh, likelihood of success in a tournament. Duck, so, deck fungibility, maybe? Sure. So like whether how, how replaceable or exchangeable one deck is for another without affecting your, your bottom line. A, a really good modern player who's extremely in tune with the format may argue that on any given weekend, there is a best deck. But we've also seen that with modern in particular, it's actually more of a format that rewards knowing the format and knowing your deck more than it is shifting decks week to week, um, which might be is kind of more of a standard thing. So the and that's probably true in a format like EDH as well. Um the so because of that if you if you say that the you know out of 15 possible decks in modern a third of them are $1500 a third of them are 1000 and a third of them are 500 and the difference in in the percentage um of success rate that any one of them gives you is like plus or minus 5% then that's really different than if it's plus or minus 50% because if the most expensive decks tend to win more then you you are in literally a win more scenario where if you can only afford a $500 deck, you are going to win far fewer games, matches and tournaments than somebody who can afford more. And it is the very definition of win more. But if you're in a situation where um, roughly the same definition of pay to win, sorry. Sure. Okay. Pay to win. And, um, but if at each price point between 500 and 1500, um, each grouping of decks, say in each third of that, uh, out of each of those three segments, if each segment has a deck with a higher percentage, but it is not directly correlated to whether or not it is in the cheapest, medium, or highest price, then you're in a very different situation. And I don't think that uh, in-depth analysis has been tabled to this point to you know, fully explore the topic from the perspective of participation rates in any given year. So taking all of the participants in modern tournaments over the last five years and graphing that against deck costs to see if deck costs seem to impact participation. Um, that wouldn't isolate all variables or give you a super definite answer, but it would give you a clue as to what direction you were supposed to be you know, probing in. Um, and it's, it's also the case that modern cannot be looked at in a vacuum, right? Like we're magic isn't a single format system. It's a platform. And so even if the average deck cost in modern was to hit, say, $2,500, if that pushed more players towards draft standard and EDH, which I would call the tier one formats for magic that are most important to wizards in their capacity to sell new product, that might actually be better overall for the game. There's an argument to be made that you that, that the formats that require the least number of new cards are better for the players, but worse for the game. And we've talked about this before in terms of legacy and vintage and so forth. And so it's entirely possible that you want modern legacy and vintage to be as expensive as as the market will bear 
without destroying the formats completely so that you can push people into the arms of these other formats that you want people playing that require them to buy more things. And obviously that that doesn't assume that the 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 average player should be in agreement with the motivations of Wizards of the Coast or Hasbro and that they should be agreeing to spend more money. But it's going to be almost impossible to counter whatever statistics Wizards can gather. And I, I think we can all agree that they're probably imperfect in the way that they're gathering them and the way that they're analyzing them. Um, but they still have more data than we do. So they know the, the modern participation rates compared to, compared to um, what they have done with reprints. So they, they already know whether it's affecting that format in a negative way in terms of its overall participation. They also have a better sense of um, needing to manage the entire platform as opposed to a, a single um, a single format. And if price elasticity supports um, decks being more expensive in general or magic being more expensive in general, i.e. Wizards has looked at um, what the average committed magic player spends. And I'm not talking about the 20 million people worldwide that supposedly play magic. I'm talking about the ones that are actually showing up at events on a semi-regular basis, which is a much small, smaller pool of people, I think, in the low single-digit millions globally. Probably less than that, um, I'd say. But... Depending on the format. But I mean, like, if you add all of the FNM players, the GP attendees, um, uh, pre-release people, uh, and EDH groups that hang out at local shops and stuff, you, you probably get single-digit millions worldwide. Um, so my point being that the if the price elasticity supports Magic being more expensive overall, Wizards thinks that they could sell us more stuff, which is certainly in sync with what we've seen over the last few years, where they've tried to throw more pro- more products down the pipeline, right? Then... I think players need to wrap their heads around the possibility that Wizards sees a lot of benefit in targeting the most, the wealthiest portion of their market and giving them more things to buy, which is why in a month where a lot of people on social media have been complaining about, say, the cost of modern, instead of them turning around and announcing, you know, here's a fifth, you know, a new modern event deck like they did with the black white tokens deck years ago. Um, you know, here's a new one of those. Instead, they gave us a new $250 premium standard product that comes complete with eight new masterpieces. That That is not the signal you get from a co- company that is worried about the cost right. of their game. Uh, <clears throat> you, you good? Is it my my turn? <laughs> when, you, when you floated this idea for the topic tonight, I knew this was more of a soapbox than a discussion, but you were expecting a rant, I, and you got I, one. So I will say that I I am sympathetic in some capacity to the uh, lamentations of those who complain that it's too expensive. They love the game, they want to play it, and they feel like even if they're not getting priced out, that they're worried other people are. And there's certainly a social component too, in that it's like, hey, I'm established, I have cards, I have money, I can get into it. But what about the kids who are eight and nine years old? Who, who are having a harder time engaging with this game that I love, that I play at eight and nine years old. I want them to be able to play. And it's very much comes from a position of I want, uh, with some people, comes from a position of I want to take this thing, which I love and has done so much for my life, and to make sure it's available to other people who are in my shoes in the same way. 
and, and opening the game to a uh, otherwise disenfranchised uh, band of individuals. So I'm totally sympathetic to that and I understand where it comes from. Um, but at the same time, the rhetoric becomes uh, irksome because essentially it becomes a appeal to morality, uh, one which is hardly um, agreed upon or, or well-founded uh, to wizards. They're basically saying, we want you to make less money because we think other people should have access to this. Again, an argument that I am not unsympathetic to in its essence, but when we're talking, you know, I think that that is a really appropriate thing when we're talking about food or housing. When we're talking about magic cards, it's a little harder for me to swallow that pill. Um, for, for a number of reasons. Not... It- First of all, there's the platform argument, right? That magic is a platform. So, okay, first of all, magic has always been targeted at 18 to 24-year-old males. Recently, more recently, they now would probably say 18 to 24-year-old females. But they certainly are not targeted at 8-year-olds, and they certainly are not targeted at people with no money. Like, it's just, it is not a cheap game to play. It never has been. It never will be for the formats that they want to focus on, which necessarily are some of the more expensive ones. Like, as what I'm really alluding to isn't that Wizards is justified in their actions. It's that Wizards is a um, part of Hasbro, which is a publicly traded company who answers to their shareholders for profits. In fact, they are legally bound to pursue the maximization of profit. And because of that, they are a predictable animal. And the animal is going to chase profit. Now, -hmm. the beautiful thing about magic is that you can subvert that. We talked about that when we we had the guest on earlier this year when we were talking about social issue, like um, social access as as relates to magic. Um, It can this if if modern is a fifteen hundred dollar deck, subvert it by playing popper, subvert it by making up your own format, subvert it by just, you know, grabbing a bunch of packs and playing chaos league that you randomly run from your house. There are so many ways to play this game for dirt cheap. You can make your own format, make your own friends, pull pull your games together. And if people can do that for their own board game nights and for D&D nights and all this kind of thing, then you can certainly do it with magic cards where, as we I've alluded to many times, 99% of the cards are worth one cent or less. Like the, the majority of cards we're talking about every week are the pinnacle of the game, the cards that have the highest demand. But if you are willing to accept it like 20% off the power curve, then you can play for pennies. And and if you can't afford to play, if you're not willing to make that sacrifice, if your argument is that, no, it's not enough to just play magic with magic cards. I want to play this format for this price. Then you fundamentally misunderstand the nature of supply and demand. And you fundamentally misunderstand the profit animal that Hasbro will necessarily emulate at all times because they have to. Well, I wouldn't even say that they misunderstand supply and demand, uh, or I'm more inclined to say that they have opted to ignore it. Uh, Some of them don't understand it, but I think there are plenty of individuals who make, you know, who are making public statements and taking positions that are more, are are certainly capable of understanding it and do, they just have chosen to ignore it. Um, It's, 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 that's not their point, basically. Well, I mean, Uh, we had... and it falls apart. It, 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 a lot of the arguments that are made fall apart under any kind of scrutiny. I mean, Saffron Olive is a very intelligent individual. Um, he's written many detailed uh, breakdowns of the uh, uh, 
the EV of, of boxes of magic cards and economic articles. He's had many engaged in many discussions with member many members of the community. And yet he was willing to slap down $500 as a target price. Now, under pressure, what's his justification for that number going to be? It's going to be subjective. It's going to be anecdotal, guaranteed, because neither him nor I nor any of us, even Wizards, has perfect information on the price elasticity of Magic, um, the interactions between the price, um, the average price points in various formats, as relates to the motivations and priorities within Wizards to... Um, promote certain formats over others based on their ability to contribute to the bottom line. And if you don't understand all of those dynamics and you're not at least considering them, then it's impossible that you're coming to a number that makes any sense. Well, so I guess, you know, I I was thinking about this and if you say, okay, explain to me, you know, pick pick a price, right? You you say to to Seth or whoever, you say, all right, tell me how much this card, the the modern deck is supposed to cost. And they pick a number and ultimately you're going to be like okay that's dumb uh that's a dumb number and let me tell you why your number is dumb because we can look at this sort of large equation which takes into account everything that you james have outlined that essentially says there is something approaching a theoretically correct number for how much a modern deduction cost now i don't know it wizards doesn't know it they're trying to get as close to that as they can right that 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 that, that number exists in the same way that every weekend there is theoretically a best deck and you're going to try and get close to it, but you'll not you 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 don't know if you don't know what it is, and you don't know if you'll hit it. Um, but that is one condition to satisfy. There is an alternative way to consider it and go, okay, that is the best way to determine the price of a deck when your goal is to maximize profit or maximize player retention. The other way to look at how much a deck should cost is to compare the cost of engaging in this activity with similar activities in different domains. What is the sure. what is the average deck of a comparable format for Pokemon or Digimon or uh, or Eternal or Yu-Gi-Oh! Yeah, yeah, or right, Final right. Fantasy the new artifact. Like, I pick any of these, right? And you can go broad with this. It doesn't, have, it doesn't have to be games. You can talk about scuba diving as one of the as one of the ones that I like to go to, the well that I like to yeah. return to. So you can look at those and go, and and now we're less interested in, in applying this formula based on Wizards bottom line and more about access to a hobby based on relative access to other hobbies. Um, and you can probably come up with a reasonable number. First of all, that you're going to be surprised at how much other hobbies cost. I think if you run those numbers, I was at autocross today, which is where you drive a car around in a parking lot for 45 seconds and it's a ton of fun and you can take your grandmother's Buick out and have a great time. But let me tell you about the amount of people, money those people spend on that hobby. Uh, the one guy who I was doing fun runs with when I was riding passenger in his car, I think he said his set of tires was... I think they were almost a thousand dollars a wheel and he's lucky if he gets half a season. It's like he can, (laughs) he can essentially drive on his tires for probably a combined 90 minutes before they're wasted. And then it's $4,000 for a set of tires. And that's just the tires. (laughs) <laughs> that doesn't count anything else. And, so, and, and, so like, and, my, my point being is that some of these other hobbies can get astronomically expensive very, very quickly, even at a local level. Um, so there, there, and, and the, the larger point here is there are other ways to consider what the correct price should be other than wizard's bottom line. But even if you can pick one of those, even if you can decide what that other metric should be and you 
are somehow able to run the numbers, I still don't think you're going to come back to an answer that you like. If for no other reason than almost everything that you pick other than magic is a sunk cost. Those tires are ruined. That scuba suit that you bought that was $400, you are never reselling. Those paint supplies, once that paint dries on the canvas, it's gone. Magic cards can be sold again, which is a very rare uh, characteristic of any sort of hobby. Um, and that you are able to recoup your costs pretty considerably and sometimes at a profit. Uh, so even if I'm trying to be as generous as possible and appreciating the arguments coming from people and, and shooting for other pillars here, I think at the end of the day, they're going to fall apart if for no other reason that you can sell your magic cards. Yeah. So I, I made the same point on tw- on Twitter to somebody that was engaging and, and attempting to like suss out the discussion. and. And I think it's an important one that players often overlook because we freak any time the cost of magic cards comes up, somebody chimes in with, listen, I've spent 5,000 on such and such, but I'd be happy for it to go to zero if it meant other people playing the game. And, and, and I think <laughs> where that part of that comes from like a good place, like, a, a you know, a, a giving place. Part of it comes from the fact that they know that will actually never happen. Um, part, it's very easy. It's so easy claim. to make that claim when <laughs> it doesn't actually go to zero. Um, and, and part of it comes from, uh, a fear that it's going to go to zero anyway, because nobody's going to play their format. And I think that with legacy, this is a lot more likely than with modern, right? Like we think we talk, we, you and I constantly talked about how legacy's not dying, but it's stalled. Like it's, it's definitely, it's not a growth format by any means, because any growth pressure on the format that sees an influx of new players that don't have any of the cards will necessarily drive up the prices of things like revised duels and make the format that much less accessible in the following season. So it, it's a it's a self-limiting format. And because of that, it's very unlikely to ever be core to Wizards so long as the reserve list exists. Now, if we look at, if we're looking at um, you know, the, the cost of magic in comparison to other things. If you go back to the video um, back and forth that I did for Telerian Academy last year, um, in the prof's original video that I responded to um, on his channel, he tried to play that whole board games are cheaper card where he showed like 10 or 15 amazing board games that were between 50 and $100 and talked about how many hours of use you could get out of this versus the cost of a modern deck. And therefore, modern decks must be overpriced. But of course, this makes no sense. And, and it, it goes back to the point you were making. In, in, a, in a scenario where you have disc, discretionary um, gaming product that is part of an even broader sphere of entertainment spending, like discretionary entertainment spending, you have to look at Magic as part of that massive ecosystem of overlapping de- Venn diagrams that describes people's spare time. And that includes sports, it includes um, video gaming. It includes tabletop gaming, which would include board games and magic. It includes, um, you know, the you know box seats for an, an orchestra, um, playing sports or attending sporting events, et cetera, et cetera. And some of those things are very expensive. And you can argue that they are rich man's games, you know, yachting and thousand dollar tires for for your Porsche and, and what have you. Um, is not particularly relevant to the average magic player. But you can make the argument that, Okay, sure. There is a $50 board game over there, which you could play for the same number of hours as your $1,500 deck. So why are you, why then, if you have this alternative, are you so insistent that this option must be $1,500? Perhaps the solution is you're supposed to play the $50 game and vote with your wallet. 
<laughs> like it, instead of yelling at the wall about something being more expensive than something else, if you don't believe it, it holds the value, then you have to go buy the $50 option and prove your point. If you bitch about it on social media and then buy the $1,500 deck regardless, all you're reinforcing is that the utility of the deck actually was $1,500 because you elected to spend it, you voted for it with your wallet, and you've only reinforced the entire system. I mean, you, you got to vote with your feet or vote with your money. Otherwise, you're not sending any signals to the source. Well, that, and that probably, I think, ties into sort of a, a core point here uh, that is perhaps difficult to to discuss or d- difficult to really put a fine point on at times. But entertainment experiences inherently have subjective values. Box, you know, box seats at an opera costs, I'm sure, an exorbitant amount of money that I would never pay in a million years because I would not derive that value from them. Um, whereas a magic deck worth, you know, a thousand dollars to your grandpa is worthless. It's it's not even good as kindling. But for you, it represents much more. Um, and even if you take things that are comparable for, in, you know, much more within the same realm, magic cards and board games. And I am a huge board gamer. I played Viticulture on Friday night and Caverna on Saturday night. Like I'm very much into that scene. Uh, they offer very different experiences and I uh, assign different values to them emotionally uh, and how much enjoyment. So there, that's the other struggle to this is it's very easy to try and assign numeric values to cut to a luxury to, to magic based on some metric. But, but, Ultimately, it's a question of your own priorities and you can't choose that. Like you you can't, everyone has a different rating for that. Everyone has a different priority. So that throws all of the numbers off anyways, because it, which it, you're essentially comparing apples to oranges in every case. Like, yeah, you can buy $500 worth of board games and like theoretically get more hours out of them than magic cards. But like, if you don't enjoy it, then... It's not the same thing. It's not like we're comparing a Camry versus a Civic where the Camry is two grand cheaper and is much better on paper uh, and like is otherwise the same, right? Then it's, you just buy the Camry. Uh, but if you love Civics, then it's worth the two grand and it's worth the two grand to you. Then yeah, if you're, if you're so Civic it Nation, it's a different thing. So, I mean, the, the thing is that because of all that, because of how subjective it is and how anybody's price is going to be based on their own limited information pool and their u- relative utility. Which which can change based on the time of day, by the way. And sure. And and also the, the human tendency to, <laughs> to be reacting emotionally rather than logically to this situation in general. Wizards, it behooves wizards. Not only are they legally responsible to do it, but it also just is logic. It, it's logical that they are going to pursue the big picture perspective. They're managing many formats simultaneously. They are managing the platform of magic, the brand of magic. They are not micromanaging the cost of a format unless that format is super important for them to sell product. And there's a reason that standard gets the main sets every year, the ones that are mass sellers that are printed in every language. And the modern master sets are only printed in three languages because modern is not a tier one format. No matter how much you love it or think it's it's important, um, it is not tier one, it's tier two. And legacy and vintage are tier three or four. And the thing is that I think that one of the conflicts in the community comes from the fact that as a competitive player, you kind of feel like standard is like, FM standard is new bland, and then 
you're a good player, you're a competitive player, you know how to play modern and legacy is like the connoisseurs game. And what those players neglect to understand is that what makes revenue for the game is not the same as what the best or most committed players like to play or prefer to play or gravitate towards because necessarily you're on the the funnel that leads people into the brand is going to be widest at the beginning and narrowest at the end that the smallest group of people are going to spend way more money per capita their arpu average revenue per user is going to be much higher for somebody like me who spent who's literally spending tens of thousands of dollars a year on magic right now um to participate in the hobby um versus rando person who buys a one commander deck just in his you know you gets it as a gift or something and it has essentially spent zero to fifty dollars a year and the formats that those people play have to be the most accommodating to a new player to require the least amount of pre-existing knowledge and the products that are aimed at them need to be at the price point that is likely to hook them in so You don't want your standard decks to be $1,500 because that's a major on-ramp. That's a tier one format. But it's very reasonable that a modern deck's price could be in a range from anywhere from, you know, $250 to $2,500. And that you, as long as there are a bunch of different options in the format, that's going to work out just fine for the brand overall. You can also look look at a situation where the price is going up, but card availability is still relatively persistent versus a situation where you literally can't find copies. So for instance, something like, um, you know, Ancestral Recall is out of stock at various major retailers on any given week because there just aren't that many, or at least, especially like a beta and alpha card, right? Like name a beta, an alpha rare. The odds that most vendors are out of stock of it in any given week are high. Especially if that vendor has a lot of traffic, like a Star City Games, super popular old school card. Well, even if their price is higher than average, Star City Games is probably still sold out most of the time. Where So if you have a card in Modern that goes from $20 to $70, but, you can still, but there are still 60 copies available in TCG Player, you do not have a problem. Because those players have alternate decks they can play. They have alternate formats they can play. They can replace the card in many instances with a slightly inferior card. So for instance, in Legacy, you can run Shocks instead of running Dual Lands, save yourself hundreds, if not thousands of dollars, and still be decently competitive. You are definitely sacrificing percentage points, but you can still play and have fun in the format and actually feel better about yourself when you win because you played with a handicap. But, but still, most players don't do that when they could if they wanted to. Because they feel like like they're not playing real legacy or whatever. I mean, they're, they, they are ascribing a tremendous amount of utility to factors that probably don't bear the weight of that cost. And, you know, it's, it, it's just funny. They, from a whole bunch of different angles, it, it's messed up. But, but let me circle back for a second to something you said earlier, where you were talking about how magic retains value. And here's an interesting premise, right? What if they go back to modern decks, like when they had the black white tokens deck available for a short period of time, but instead of it being a limited edition product that they never returned to, which is what happened with that one, every year they pick one modern deck and they say, this will be an open-ended print run for the entire year. You can go to HasbroToyShop.com at any point during the calendar year of 2019, and you can order a burn deck for $49.99 or whatever. 
they're going to pick a price. And they're going to say, this is more or less guaranteed to be the cheapest deck in modern. And we're probably going to choose decks that were already relatively cheap and not necessarily the most competitive in the format. You know, burn is always something you can run and win matches with, but it's rarely the best choice on any given weekend. And we're just going to print this thing completely into the ground. Anybody who's already got a burn deck, it's worth even less tomorrow than it was today. And by the end of the year, it's going to be worth that much less than that. Then we're going to take that one out of circulation and we're not going to come back to it for like 10 years. Next year, you're going to get scape shift. The year after that, you're going to get blue white control. That's interesting, right? Uh, Well, interesting in the sense that it would throw some very hard curves into the magic economy, but I don't think it would solve any of the problems people wanted to solve because they'd be like, okay, on Monday morning, we're announcing the deck that's going to be available for all of 2019 and people, okay, what is it going to be? And then say, okay, this year we're doing scape shift or, you know, or affinity and affinity staples across the board suddenly crash and everything that's not affinity jumps up 20%, right? And everyone who owns an affinity deck is writing angry Reddit posts about how they just bought those Arkbound Ravagers and they paid 60 bucks a piece and now they're $4. And you do this every single year and it just feels terrible for everyone everywhere every (laughs) time. And, and, and yet they, they would have provided a solution and, and, and it would be a reasonable one. But because, you know, all these people said they were willing to lose the value. So this is what it looks like when you do that. And and this is just a simplistic version. It becomes much more complex if they start printing all, if they just took the top 100 cards in modern and said, this is the modern toolbox. And we, we're going to print it every year for X price. And it gives you everything you need to put, to to play modern. So let's say that the price of that is, I mean, it, it would have to be, say it's a play set of 100 cards. So you're getting 400 cards. It has to be at least $400. That would be a dollar a card. That would instantly wipe out t- like hundreds of millions of dollars of inventory worldwide. Yeah, you would wreck your local game stores, which by the way are exactly they would the people get, you're trying to keep in stock. Or in it also, it, and, and that loss of value would include all of the collections worldwide, the modern collections worldwide, and all of the vendors. And the only upside would be that everybody has everything that they, they need to play a format, which is now sucking the life out of the formats where they where you actually have to buy new cards on a regular basis. So if they only do it for modern and they don't do it for things like standard, then it's like, why am a lot of players would say, why would I play standard? It's like $500 for a standard deck, whereas for $500, I can get every card in modern. So you can see once you start really like digging into it and looking at various options, how complicated it would be and how much risk there is when instead they can just go to the well the way that they've been doing with minor tweaks to the relative amount of reprints. So for instance, what I predict will actually happen despite all the recent complaining is that 2019 is going to have a pretty strong master style set with... 20 or so relevant reprints and we're going to see the same cycle that always goes on all of those reprints are going to crash people are going to forget to buy them when they're low they're going to go up again later and then people are going to whine that scalding cards are 70 when they had a chance at them at 35 and all the stuff that isn't reprinted is going to spike again and people are going to neglect to play the cheapest deck because they decide they like deck x and they've decided it's the deck for them even though that deck is 700 dollars more than another option that they would only enjoy 6% less. And 
You know, it's it's just I, I find it so hard to be sympathetic when when there's just so much such a lack of logic, cons- like transparency and comprehension of the complexity of this system that's in place and the tremendous voting power that every player holds in their wallet, both in terms of how they interact with the brand, each individual format, any specific deck or card, and the various entertainment alternatives that well, you list. Ag- again, I will... Uh, you know, on a larger point, I will step back and go, I understand and I'm sympathetic to the concerns players have or some individuals have with the value, the cost, the the apparent cost of entry to some decks and formats. I get where it's coming from. I understand why they feel that way. And I, I, I don't think that that is unfounded or unfair. Ultimately, most of that falls away under scrutiny, which we both knew, we both both understand that. And I think in some capacity, a lot of these people also understand that. Uh, but it is a very emotional reaction. And I, I don't know, they're wrong. They're 100% wrong. We know they're wrong, but I'm also not really angry at them for being wrong. I do get a little annoyed when they take the soapboxes and podiums and complain constantly about how it's awful. And it's a very, um, it's a very hollow behavior where it's very easy to drum up a large amount of support and make yourself look like a hero because you're calling for these changes and we should be better for the common man, blah, 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 which is it's meaningless, right? Like nothing's going to change. You're attacking an invisible enemy um, who, you know, all in all of this, your your whole argument falls apart uh, under scrutiny, but, you're still drumming up a lot of support for yourself. I was giving somebody a hard time about this like two or three weeks ago now that I'm saying it out loud and I don't remember who it was. But that that's what's frustrating is, is when you kind of try and rally the troops around this invisible boogeyman um, rather than just being sort of frustrated. So, uh, you know, I'm sympathetic to a point, I think. And and ultimately, you are, you are comparing their emotional concerns uh, to your very rigid formulaic mathematical approach to the cost. So of course they're just you're just never gonna land on the same page. I mean I'm fully capable on a personal well, understanding level of interacting of interacting with a friend who say I you know, say when my brother was in university, he wanted to play magic with me, but he couldn't afford it. So if I wanted him to come along to modern night at the F and M, I gave him a deck. Like if you're that committed to ensuring people have access and you have a large collection, but you're not sharing it or loaning it out as the pros tend to do with each other to help each other out on a regular basis, since they all understand that it's impossible to have, say, an entire legacy collection or an entire modern collection at all times with how the meta shifts and so forth. If you're not working the social network to provide access, then, you know, ask yourself whether you really deserve to be upon the soapbox. Mm hmm. Yeah, you put your money where your mouth is, essentially. Yeah, and and also, you know, vote based on which cards you purchase, which decks you play, which formats you you participate in, to send the right signals. Because I guarantee you, bitching is not going to work. One of the things that people don't understand is that, say, if you if you look at any format whose card pool is open ended, as Modern's is, um, where every year it gets a thousand more cards. There is no version of the economic model for magic that looks anything like something that Hasbro is going to be interested in that keeps up, keeps up the pace of reprints. 
because every year there's a thousand more cards. So the modern card pool is getting bigger and bigger and bigger by a thousand cards per year. But the models, the economic models they're working under only lets them reprint, you know, like 20, 30. And even if you want to take the soapbox and say, double it. Okay, it's an arbitrary number, but okay, fine. They double it. Now they're going to give you 60 reprints a year. That will still eventually not be enough. And anytime they, it's like whack-a-mole. If you push, if you push one deck down or one group of cards down, then the others go up. And the reason for that is that the demand is is already in the marketplace. So you make any one card cheaper, the other ones will get more expensive on the basis of the overall demand for the format. And as you're printing new cards into it, cards will ebb and flow. One of the other things that's hard for them to manage is say, for instance, if Mox Opal is played in just Affinity and they reprint it in a Modern Master set at the level that they print it, with, that they know that that set will sell through the distribution channels, and then three or four more decks start using Mox Opal, then demand is going to necessarily increase the price of the card because there are there's that much more demand for that card. That doesn't mean they they need to go double the print run for the entire Master Series the next time they print it. It just means that that, that card in particular should rotate through the schedule a little more often as they did with Tarmogoyf. So like it's perfectly reasonable to to pick off some of the like top 20 cards in modern. Look at the ones that are mythics, either rarity shift them down to rare, which is just unlikely from their viewpoint. Um or at least print them right like every time you get the chance, print it out. As we saw with Tarmogoyf where it was printed back to back to back in the master sets. More of that can go on, the format will be just fine. You and I will have nothing to complain about. But people need to understand that magic is always going to be a game of of rising and falling card prices that the economy of magic is part of the meta and if you don't pay attention to it then you are yeah. you are leaving money on the table and and that's that is never going to change and if you don't like it then magic's probably not the game for you you can still you can choose to ignore it but you won't get the most out of it that you could and you might want to consider that there is just some other game that you could play that would give you many of the same benefits without Mm -hmm. having the hassle Mm -hmm. of the economy to think about. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, I think we're, we're, we've done this topic here quite well, uh, short of, yeah, sort of enumerating the people we are going to email and tell them that they're idiots. Um, (laughs) so, uh, well, I'm, I, I I would, I'm none of the, the thing that fascinates me is that many of the people that have had engaged in this debate online, are not well informed. <laughs> we'll call them idiots, but they're not well informed. But there are other people that are deeply steeped in magic culture and have at least considered the economics. You know, people like Seth, who are not idiots by any means, that still seem to think they have a number. Right. And and I'm I'm now like dying to debate Seth or someone like Seth in a forum where I mostly shut up and let them explain in detail how they come to the conclusion of number X. Because I I would be flabbergasted if anybody could put together a cohesive argument for a specific number and actually back it up. Yeah. And I would be curious to hear it because I don't think that we are the uh, end all be all. I believe we are totally fallible, but I, I it's hard to imagine them coming up with an answer other than, well, it just feels like it's too high. Um, and nor did I, I, I say I, they were idiots. I just said we were going to email them and tell them they're idiots. There's also there's a lot of like math to go through on demand curves and price elasticity that I'm probably going to throw into an article because I think it's it's tough to, you know, do it without visuals. 
But I think there is some benefit to showing people some graphs and how some assumed <laughs> some assumed segmentation about okay, so if you lower the price by this, how many extra people do you have to add to the secondary market buying signals to make sure that the LGS revenues don't fall? And how much additional participation do you need at events? And what is the echoing impact on primary revenue for Wizards if more people play Modern? Yeah. Uh, I wasn't laughing at you. It's just funny because it's like, well, you know you're going to win an argument when you're like, I'm going to show you some graphs. <laughs> That's going to get people interested in what you have to say. Well, it, it, I, I find it difficult to explore this topic without the visuals. Yeah. Because if you haven't like, if you haven't ever taken basic economics courses, then a lot of this shit just, it's very difficult to relate to because the concepts are utterly foreign to your personal anecdotal experience. Yeah. And if you've never, if you don't understand price elasticity, if you don't understand demand curves, and you haven't looked at some sample math, then you're you're really missing the tools to analyze what the price of anything should be. And so, you know, the best I can do is to put some basic amount of knowledge out there, and hopefully that it helps people to understand and advance the cause. Because when I chose like MTG Critic as my as my title on Twitter, it had nothing to do with finance. Is because I thought that there wasn't enough criticism of wizards, <laughs> and yet I have repeatedly been put been put in the position through my involvement with MTG Finance of explaining um, why I think wizards does certain things in a way that people makes people think that I'm defending it as necessary or that we're attempting to defend our profits. So, like for instance, people like me defending Mythic Edition as a perfectly reasonable product. People were pointing fingers like, well, of course you like it. You're going to make money on it. It's like, there's almost no way they can put out this product that somebody's not going to make money on it. Like whether it's an open-ended run or not. Like, for instance, with Mythic Edition, you, you weren't here for this conversation last week, but as a final point, let's say that Mythic Edition wasn't limited at all. Let's say it was open-ended for all of, for like a three-month stint or whatever, and you could buy as many as you wanted. Lots of vendors would load up on them to whatever the extent of their immediate cash flow availability was. Most players that could afford it would grab one. The prices of those masterpieces would be dirt cheap for a long time. And then once they turned the spigot off, the timer would start on how long it took for the, for instance, masterpiece to fairies to drain out of the market and turn into a red hot spec, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So, and would we care? Like, would you and I be upset if that was the path they choose to take? No, frankly, no, we would be just... easier to get a hold of them because there'd be so many more on the market instead of like dealing with the atrocious Hasbro website for for the whatever the 40 minutes that they'll be in stock for. Yeah. And we would just set our alarm clock for to you know wake us up in a year and a half when these are a relevant thing to look at. Like, I would like to sleep for a year and a half. The thing about MTG Finance is that we're not desperate for specs, guys. There, there, there is so much action that we leave stuff on the table all the time. Not only are most of us that are armchair speculators like you and I limited in our funds, like I'm going to spend 30 grand this year, but I'm not going to spend 400 grand. So it's not like I'm buying up Black Lotus's left, right, and center. And we're limited by time. And there are hundreds of opportunities a week around the globe, and we only dig into a small handful of them. So whether or not product X is released in pattern Y has like gives me no reason to argue. You know, any yeah. comments we make about something is for the benefit of people's understanding. We hope. Yeah, uh, a point that 
people who believe will believe and people who won't won't and there's basically no reason to argue that one um yep okay seriously though now it is after 11 o'clock <laughs> uh so james where can our listeners find you you guys can find me on Twitter at MDG Critic, where you can argue with me further on this topic, as well as via my weekly articles on MDGPrice.com, including a forthcoming article on this topic, where you can argue with me as well. Yeah, I gotta say, your uh, claims that you have better things to do with your time and you're leaving money on the table is does not hold water when you're inviting people onto Twitter to have these ridiculous conversations <laughs> constantly. <laughs> I, I can't, I, I can't not answer obvious hanging questions when i see them out in front of me and hmm. certainly a failing of mine that you don't seem to share uh, i do i get angry at my computer screen frequently but uh, a long time ago i learned better than to try and engage uh but for better or for worse in any case uh i'm a travis allen i'm on twitter at wizard bumpin b-u-m-p-i-n you can find me on twitter i will not argue with you for the most part even though i do enjoy arguments doing them online is uh frustrating and ultimately a fool's game uh <laughs> i also write every monday on mtg price for the watchtower series and i think those are the relevant ones for the time being i'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mdgprice.com pro trader service for just 4.99 a month or 49.99 per year you can get early access to this podcast fantastic articles by the best mtg finance minds in the business and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that would drive better returns and save you money playing magic the gathering all right. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 135, a particularly good one. I would like to thank this week. Uh, lots for people to listen to at work or on the commute or in their prison cell, wherever you happen to listen. Um, so thank you very much, James. I had a great time and I will see you next week. Thank you, Travis. Thanks, everybody, for indulging our soapbox dramas. And uh, we'll see you guys all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm.